Listening to Rippercast episode 19 with special guest Chris Scott, and the conversation is already in progress. 1040 mm, Probably something like that, yeah. You're, you're just outside Maidstone, aren't you? That's right, yeah. yeah. Yes, I go to Broadstairs quite, a lot, quite often. I used to live, I lived there for about four. It's a lovely town, actually. I've got a very soft spot for Broadstairs. Yeah, I. I well, I used, to, I used I to be involved in the Dickens Festival when I lived there. Right. Right. Which is just about now. It's the third week of June. I think it's this coming week. It's probably on because mm. I used to get cool. involved in used to get involved in the play because um, I used to do a lot of drama in my younger years. Ramsgate's right. in Kent, also correct. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, as far east as you can go. Okay, literally. I think uh, a lot of us have theater backgrounds. That seems to be a reoccurring um, theme. For mm-hmm. us, we t- we talk about uh, how many ripperologists, for lack of a better word, uh, come from a little bit of theater. There seems yeah. to be a bunch of us. Yeah. Yes. Well, well I've I mentioned do, but... a couple of things I've posted, and people have said, you know, about sort of theatrical connections and that. Um, I, d- I did originally train as actor when I was because I did. I went to uni in London, and then I did a year at drama school. But um, it was a particularly sort of low point in the theatre. That was in the seventies, and in the end, I decided to get a proper job because I wanted some money. <laughs> I gave it a go for a year, eighteen months, and absolutely, I got a couple of voiceovers in ads, and that was it. And I thought, you know, bugger this for a game of soldiers. <laughs> well, thank God that that was the case, because otherwise we'd have lost both you and Keith Skinner to to acting. Well, um, I carried on doing it on a sort of amateur, <coughs> amateur basis up until about, um, I think the last stage role I did was in about 96, because that's when all the health, the, the many years things started, the, you know, the vertigo problems and that. Right. How, are, how is that now? Man, not good, not good. But it's, right. it's uh, sort of par for the course, you know, I, I'm stuck with it until it either goes into remission or whatever. Yeah. Um, my sister's got it as well as she was diagnosed with it about six months ago, but it's not hereditary, but, um, you know, it's just one of these sort of damn unfortunate coincidences. Yeah. Uh, it's just, oh, to, to, put it, to put it bluntly, it's just a bloody nuisance. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to let it rule my life, but there are certain mm. days when you have to give in to it. Yeah. Otherwise, you're, you know, you're, if you go out, you're feeling so disoriented and so dizzy that you might take a tumble. There's no earthly point in putting yourself in physical danger. God, yeah, and yeah. and that kept you from the Brighton conference, right, Chris? Well, it's kept me from two conferences. Yeah, right. It's a very the most frustrating thing is it's very fickle. You you literally know you never know from one day to the next how you're going to be. So it's 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 damn near impossible to actually plan anything, be it a commitment like the conference or social life or you know, if friends of mine, um, you know, I, it's always a yes, but you know, if a friend of mine phones up and says, "Oh, you know, would you like to go to the cinema next week, or do you fancy going out for a meal one evening, or whatever?" It's always yes, but you know. But mm-hmm. close friends, obviously, now you know, take account of that. But 
you know, it's it's. I, st- I still get galled by it, but I think I've become sort of fairly... I mean, I've had it for 12 years now, so I think you get to the point where you sort of... Um, my philosophy now is those days when I feel okay, I make the most of. And the days when I'm yeah. not, you know, I just, so, you know, it's just under the duvet and wait till it goes, basically. Right. I mean, there's really not very much else you can do. I've listened to a few of the Rippercasts, and I've, I was, I was up very, very lately. I thought I listened to one, mm. because I listened to the one that you did, Paul, and then I listened to the one that Stephen did. Yeah, um, I've downloaded the Stan Russo one, but I haven't listened to it yet. But they're absolutely fascinating. They are, aren't and they? They're, they're good. It's a, it's, well, it's, it's a it's, good... I find typing chat, I mean, I chat socially on sort of various other sites and this, that and the other, but I find it so frustrating because although I'm a reasonably competent typist, it's so impersonal. It is. And you never get the feedback. You hear the, hear the voice or, or or anything like that. And the voice is so important in the way that well, people... Well, it is. It is. It is. And it's, it's very nice. I mean, the times... The only person from the casebook I speak to regularly on the phone is Norma. She phones me up quite often. And, uh, you know, we have long chats. We're on the phone about two hours sometimes. Right. Um, and that, that takes it one step beyond. You still miss that sort of visual feedback of body language and expression and that. But Yeah. You know, it, it, it's... It's like, a, it's like a halfway house, but I, I find it much better than just sitting here typing. Yes. With all the transcribing. You know, it's typing something, because I'm doing all the Scotsman articles at the moment, and there are just so yeah. many of them. Um, there's, a, you know, there's an absolute wealth of them. They, the, the detail I go into, it's quite extraordinary. Um, and there's little snippets there mentioned that I haven't seen um, like I've, I've just finished doing the um, Elizabeth Stride um, articles, and because um, one character I'm really trying to track down is is uh, Dean Schutz or Dean Schitz, however you pronounce it or spell it. Yeah. Because I just can't find him anywhere. There's no death certificate. There's no census record anywhere. Nobody knows even what his wife's first name was, which would help. Yeah. And, and then yes, in America, they most did. Most of them well, this is, yeah, this is what I thought. I've, I've, I've been to the Ellis Island site, and, but of course that only starts from about 1892 or three, I think. So if he'd gone, if he left the country fairly immediately after the, um, after the murder, although when was, that, when was that case he was involved with, the, the, the sort of shenanigans at the club? Him and Kozabrodsky, there was that court case. Because he, he was inside for a short time, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, he was. There was that sort of riot at the club. I think that was that eighty nine. Yeah, it was. It was later. It could have been eighty nine, ninety. I think it. Yeah, um, I found no trace of him on the Ellis Islands. But uh, when I was doing the the Scotsman article yesterday about the, um, it wasn't actually the inquest report. I did that today, but it was the sort of follow up reports. Uh, obviously, a reporter had been around and was talking to people. Uh, so, at, at uh, Paul in Berners Street, and um, it Paul first... dropped off. So let me um, let me oh, right. get him back on. That's one thing um, that we want to let you know, Chris, uh, before you continue. Is that uh, if you happen to lose your connection, yeah. um, hang up. There you are. Yeah. I'll be back. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Your volume is isn't as as loud as it was first, Paul. Unless you're. Hello, Paul. 
yeah, yes. No, I haven't done anything to my volume. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the same as I was. Okay, that's better, I think. Um, okay, you were saying, um, Chris, about uh, you're searching, you're, you're looking for Dim Schultz. And yeah, it's, well, it's it's. Um, um, I I don't know, you know, when you want to start the app, actual because probably my take on the case is different from uh, quite a few other people's. Because I'm, to be honest, I'm not really, well, I'm not really interested in the main suspects. In in terms of them as, I'm I'm interested in them as people and what you can find out. Um, but. I'm more like a magpie, you know, I'll flit about, I'll do a bit on Donston, then I'll do a bit on Druitt, then I'll do a bit on Ostrog, and then I'll go and look at one of the witnesses. And I, I feel, because I haven't got a drum to beat, I can flit about really and do what I want where I want. And it's just picking up little snippets here and there. I mean, and I've got this sort of um, self, not self-imposed, I've got this sort of um, hit list of people I'd really like to be able to track down and find out more about. Right. I mean, in the great scheme of things, I mean, uh, Dean Schutz is not that important. I mean, okay, he found, you know, he was the first on the scene with one of the victims. But if if one's motive were actually tracking down the killer and putting a name to him, then really he's of very minor importance. But to me, he's interesting as an individual because I want to know more, you know, I want to know what his, his wife's name was. I want to, I've got no idea how old he was. That's right. Um, and it's just little... <laughs> Thing. That's that. That's my take on it. You know, there's other people like Thomas Bowyer that I'd love to know more about. Oh yeah, and you had there's mentioned just, um, uh, one of the articles you posted recently from the Scotsman um, concerned a report that um, kind of confused uh, the Dim Dim Schultz uh, with uh, the murderer. Uh, so so it oh, appeared yes. uh, being chased well, no, down, no, being chased down the no. street. Like the next, the next morning. No, or something no, like that, no. Or? What, what I, no. What I was implying there was that there was, um, there was, a, there was a rather strange snippet in there, which was one, one of the, one of the people interviewed at the club said that there had been some kind of disturbance outside at about quarter to one, and a man had been pursued down the street that they'd lost track of him. And I wondered if there was. I've got absolutely no evidence, but I just wondered if there was any any connection with the. Israel Schwartz incident, right? That's mm. what I. That's Which would have I mean, been yeah. at roughly the same time and involved, you know, one man apparently chasing another down the street. Whether the, whether you know the clay pipe man was involved at all or whatever. I mean, it's a very murky area, the, the, the Schwartz business. But it just intrigued me that a, a sim, similar sort of events seem to be happening at roughly the same time. Right. That's I meant Schwartz, of course. And and, and the other the other thing in. What I was saying about sort of like a possible lead into, and I haven't followed this up yet because I only typed it up the other day, and it's probably only a reporting error, but when they came to interview Dean Schutz's wife, um, when she was standing at the door of the club, the reporter obviously went up to Mrs. Dean Schutz and asked her to wake up her husband because they wanted to talk to him. And she basically said, well, no, look, he's only he's had a very long day. He's only just got to bed. I'm not going to go and wake him up. Um, but throughout, she is quoted as being called Mrs. Lewis. And it definitely refers to her as the steward's wife. Now, whether they've just mistaken his Christian name for his surname, or whether there was some confusion and Dean Schutz was actually using Lewis as a surname, 
I don't know. I've got to sort of try and follow that up yet. But it's the, o the only alternative or possible alternative surname for him that I've ever seen mentioned. We should keep all this for the podcast itself. I'm recording it, actually. Oh, right. Um, and, uh, Sorry, so, I mean, that, that was literally only two days ago. And because I'm still typing, because Adam was wanting some... Some, he was desperately short of stuff for the next press trawl on, on Ripperologist, so I've sent off what I had. Yeah. And, uh, but there's some, there's some very interesting stuff in there. Like the, mm. the, other, the other snippet about, um, which had been reported elsewhere. I mean, none of this is brand new, but I'd rather it was on Casebook twice than not at all. That's always my attitude. Um, was the, um, the two women who... Um, allegedly went to the mortuary it was at the, the, the stage at which the body of um, Edo's was still unidentified and two women two unnamed women went to the mortuary and uh, swore that uh, it was a lady named Jane Kelly we know that she'd used the name Mary Ann Kelly when she was under arrest at Bishopsgate or in custody at Bishopsgate but this quoted her as um, they identified her as a Jane Kelly and then there was the 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 infuriatingly, and all these press accounts, they're so infuriatingly full of tiny little comments that suggest things that they don't um, elaborate on. And it said uh, further, something along the lines, further inquiries showed that this individual, Jane Kelly, was still alive and well. Right. So obviously it had been, and you think, well, who was that Jane Kelly? Yes. Because, of, you know, I mean, Kelly was one of the people I've done probably most work on. But um, anyway, sorry, I'm babbling away. No, that's quite all right. Oh, well, it's it's. Uh, but you're quite but right. Yes, I mean, the news newspaper reports are very much like that. They tell you, you know, something is being pursued or whatever, but you don't get to any get receive any follow up story. Exactly. The the one who the the one who's top of my hit list because she's certainly more important in the great scheme of things than either Dean Shoots or Bowyer or any of the other ones I'd like to know more about. And, you know, we're on the message boards or wherever, you know, people I've spoken to, there's always this um, business about how little we actually know about Kelly and thus, you know, she's a blank canvas and she's become a focus for a lot of fantasizing and romanticizing, all of which is true. But, you know, I yeah. always say to people, well, actually, there's one person about whom we know far less, and that's Alice McKenzie. You know, there's uh, only yeah, very little is known, oh, God, known God. about her past life. Sorry? Yeah, very little no is known about her, uh, her history, right? I mean... Two facts. Well, two alleged facts from John McCormack. One, that she was around 40, and the other, that she was either born and or brought up in Peterborough. I mean, we don't know whether Mackenzie was a, a common-law name, a maiden name, a married name, whatever. I mean, that's literally all we know. So there's even less alleged knowledge than there, well, far less than there is about Kelly. I mean, I know, I know that virtually all that we know about Kelly doesn't check out in the documentary evidence. So it all has to be taken with a pinch of salt. But because it comes from, or certain aspects of it come from various sources, we don't only, I know the vast bulk of it comes from Barnett's account, but there are sort of corroborating bits and pieces from other people. You know, there's other... There's other uh, corroboration for the Welsh connection and the fact there was a Limerick connection. I mean, McCarthy said about the letters from Ireland and the city missionary said he'd seen letters from her mother and this, that and the other. And the unnamed young woman said that she spoke Welsh and all this. Yeah. So, there, you know, there's some 
degree of corroboration. But for Mackenzie, absolutely, absolutely nothing. Apart from, you know, McCormick said she was about 40 and she came from Peterborough. And that's it. And so Very I find that, find that intriguing. Post, Sorry? Post. Sorry, uh, I was just going to say, very little research has been done into the post-canonical five victims. I so quite all that, agree. You know, yeah, I mean, there's vast swathes of newspaper reports on into those accounts, uh, those murders, which we we haven't got yet. Yeah, well, I've, I've, I've uh, I bagged all the ones on the Scotsman, so there's a lot on them coming from the... I mean, there's reams of it. Good. I, uh, they... Good. they they, they've collate, on the Scotsman site, they've collated them. It's a huge PDF document. It's like the first one. Um, I've got 65 PDF documents to type up, and I'm on the third one. Right. And the f- I hope the they're first, all short. The first two, genera- when you do pre- print preview on the uh, text file that I sent to Adam, the first two generated 34 printed pages, and I've got 65 to do. So it's like a lifetime. I'm looking on it as a retirement project. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work. Well, yeah, but it's a, it's a labour of love. It's a labour of love because I think um, not only do I mean it's the um, it's the fact that you're doing things you know which you know are going to be used to other and interest to other people. Um, and uh, as I said, a lot of a lot of these press reports are syndicated. Um, but that that doesn't matter to me. I mean, as I said, I'd rather that it was on the casebook two, three, four times than not at all. Um, and also the fact that by, not endless repetition, but by going through it, you know, and seeing it from different angles, it keeps your own knowledge up to date. Okay. Uh, Chris, where, where do you find time to do all of this? It seems like you're like 10 men. That's what I was wondering, too. It's like he has all this in his back pocket, and anytime anyone uh, has a query, the next post... No, because, like, I mean, I've got, I've got, I've got a, you know, other projects on the go as well, because, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm writing full-time now, but I've got the fiction side on the go. Um, and, you know, I think it's just a case of I keep rather odd hours anyway, because I live on my own, I'm, I can work as and when I want, so, and I tend to... I'm a bit of a night bird anyway. I mean, I quite often work through till 1, 2, 3 in the morning, and I find I get a hell of a lot done then. I'm really yeah, I do not, as well. I'm really not a pretty sight in the mornings. I mean, I don't really get going until about sort of half past nine, ten o'clock. Even though I'm up earlier than that, I'm, I'm like a bear with a sore head. I mean, all my friends know not to either phone me or come round before about ten o'clock in the morning because all I do is grunt. <laughs> and I'm really, I'm, re- I'm really not a pretty sight in the mornings. Um, but by about, you know, lunchtime, I've had something to eat and, this, and get going. And uh, I think it's just a case of because I'm working for my own pleasure... With the certainly uh, with the uh, the Whitechapel stuff, you know, if I get bored with a certain project, I just drop it, and I find I, you know, I can pour a lot of time into it because I love what I'm doing, and also because it does, you know, it does seem of use to other people. So there is an incentive, you know, there's an incentive to keep going and keep posting. It's definitely of use to like all of us. I was wondering, like, when you read certain articles uh, that you're looking for and. Um, do you find yourself like going off on a tangent because of what's in the article? You like you'll find a a person's name or a location or something else that'll oh definitely uh, that'll definitely. set I mean, you off. Half of the I mean, there's two really two main strings to the bow in far as the I mean, one obviously is the is the press troll thing, which then also goes over into the press reports column on the 
on the case book, but the other one is the, you know, census data, births, marriages and deaths and all that. And I often find that I'm typing, um, I, I was doing one the other day, I was typing up some, um, this was two days ago, it was the, the article I was referring to in the Scotsman, I was typing up the following, the follow-up interview stuff they did on the spot at Burner Street. And they were talking about, you know, the reporter was going around and talking to Dean Schutz's wife and all that. And all of a sudden there was a mention of this man called Heshberg. Right. Um, which I'd never seen before. And I did, I did a search no. on, I did a search on, um, on Casebook and there were other mentions of him. But I'm, I'm, I, he's down on my list, you know. I've got a hit list and he's on there. So I want to find out more about him. Because he was there and, you know, he said um, he was one of the ones that allegedly went off for a policeman and... And this, that, and the other. Um, and, yeah, and when because, you find- uh, um, yeah, I was just going to say, like, because there was a club meeting that night uh, at the International Workingmen's Educational Club. Yeah, uh, you, you know, there was a hundred people there, and you know, we've accounted for very few of them. And and like you say, oh, some yes. of the names pop up. Exactly, and you see, it's just little details, like the the two that I was typing up the other day. It's just little things, and I think, oh. You know, I haven't seen that before. Oh, that's interesting. It's like a magpie. I've got a sort of magpie mind. And I'll, and I'll be typing through, you know, a bog-standard report that I've read time and time again, and suddenly there'll be a little nugget that I haven't seen before. And I think, oh, that's interesting. I mean, there were two the other night. There was one. Um, there was, um, as I said, there was that thing about Dean Schutz's wife being referred to as Mrs. Lewis. And I thought, oh, I must follow that up. But then there was another one where there was an unnamed... Uh, it was a very visually um, accurate scene. The, the reporter was describing how uh, Mrs. Deemschutz was standing in the door, refusing to wake her husband because he'd only just gone to bed and he was very tired. Uh, and she was surrounded by this sort of knot of people in and to do with the club. And then this unnamed young Jewish chap interrupted um, and said about the, the different types of Jews. He said basically, you know, he said there was a lot, of, a lot of ill feeling in the area against the club, even within the Jewish community. And he, he actually called them good Jews and bad Jews. And uh, yeah, said, because... You know, uh, oh, go he ahead. said the, uh, the good Jews, who were basically the religiously observant Jews, looked down on the socialist Jews who frequented the club and really didn't want anything to do with them. And that was something right, I hadn't read. Uh, yeah, because I'd, I'd read an article, actually, that Al- Alex Chisholm sent me once, um, and it talked about uh, how people were upset that, uh, that they were holding meetings on Sundays at the International Working Man's Club. Uh, you know, some of the fellow Jews uh, you know, thought it was very inappropriate to hold some of their weekend meetings there. And, and right. I found the, the article very fascinating. I'm, uh, I'll have a search for it. I'll send it to you. I'd, I'd say I'd like to see that. The, the other yeah. one was from from the day after, because I've, I've just finished typing up the articles on the second of October, um, and there was a, an interesting um, on the day after the murder, the, they had a committee meeting at the club, deciding sort of you know what their reaction was going to be, um, and they started anybody they didn't know, they started charging to come in, and they were charging and. Uh, the, the unidentified member of the committee who was interviewed said, um, we thought five shillings would be an appropriate amount. And I thought, actually, that's rather a lot. Yeah. You know, that was more than Kelly's rent for the week. So what they basically said was that strangers were still welcome in, but they'd have to pay. And they actually said, you know, that the funds would go towards what they call the propaganda. In other words, I, th- I suppose 
financing the um, the magazine that was published from there and their you know their socialist um, activities. Yeah, the and, wor- right, the Workers Friend that was published in the back. And- yeah, there was a printing press. I can't remember the name of the guy who ran it because um, there was one account, and he was actually he actually gave evidence. He was actually sitting in the office at the time, or shortly before. It was uh, because it was the Ar- uh, the Arbeiter Front. Yeah, my yeah, the Workers' Friend and Workers uh, friend, English translation. Yeah. And was it Philip Krantz? Uh, I think it. I think it was. I think it was. To be honest, it's it's a long time since I've seen that mentioned, because when you when you sort of go in through so many and you think, oh God, where did I see that? And it's, it's sometimes it's quite hard to keep track of them all. They may have also uh, uh, used some of that money to pay for the speakers because that um, that. Uh handbill that you posted up on Facebook oh, had yes. some pretty big yeah. names in there. It did uh, indeed. It did uh, indeed. And there was, I mean, there was, there, 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 I think before we had the crash, there was a whole thread that I think either Norma started or certainly contributed to about uh, William Morris's involvement. And um, uh, Eleanor Marks was named on as one yeah, of the speakers. Yeah, um, well, they had, some, they had some quite big hitters. And I mean, they were... Um, I think they were like one of the major clubs on the organising basis. I mean, they organised... Um, I don't know how involved they were with, you know, all the rabble-rousing activities of uh, Backert um, after the murders, um, because he was a much more sort of... Concern- obviously, you know, as far as I know, he wasn't Jewish. But, um, you know, he was involved, and he went to Tower Hill, where they had all the uh, meetings of the unemployed and all that. And I think it was those sort of activities that the club would have got involved in. As well as their social activities, like you know the concert and the discussion, you know on that night, but it's um, it's all these little snippets, and I'm, I'm you know I'm sort of I'm just interested how much is still out there, um, and and every now and then, uh, you know you think oh I mean logically you sit down and you say oh you know for God's sake 120 years has passed what's going to be left you know all this has been picked over and dissected and analysed to you know to kingdom come. Sometimes with you know ludicrous, it's like you know it's like worrying at a bone and trying to get the last fragment of meat off. Um, but then suddenly something comes along, like that cache of photographs that Philip has found. Yeah, Philip, right? The, the Whitby collection, yes, exactly. It's marvelous. And then something, something really important and interesting like that comes along, and you think, well, yeah, it, it is still out there. I mean, we've all got this, you know, the stock phrase, you know, sitting in a dusty attic somewhere. But you think, yeah, there is still stuff out there. But some of it is comparatively easily obtainable. It's just been overlooked. And that's no reflection on anybody else who has been researching, because nobody can be everywhere. That's true. You know, the more eyes there are out there, then I think, you know, the more we're going to pick up. And and do you find, like, with the advent of the Internet, that it has made it, like, easier for people like you to uh, actually search out other sources? That oh, it's, immeas- it's immeasurable. I mean, I, I first started doing any searching um, many, many years ago, but that, that was only looking into my own family history. I mean, I, I moved to London in 1969, uh, well before the digital age, obviously. Um, and I remember going to the old Somerset House, as then was. I mean, the building's still there. I don't know what it's used for now, but it was... The births, marriages, and and it was like it was Dickensian. I mean, when you went there, it was on various levels, and all the original registers, handwritten, the early ones were still there. They were handwritten on parchment, 
you know, with the long S's, you know, that look like F's and all, and you had to go there and fill in a chit and fill in a form and, t- and then it took about two weeks for the certificate to come. Then you'd follow that up and go back to Somerset. It was all done manually. It was a Kardec index right. system. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, it, it sounds, well, I was going to say it sounds like something from another age, but, um, you know, digital things have moved on so quickly. It is something from another age. But at the time, you know, that, that's what you did. And so everything moved very, very slowly. The idea that you would have access to um, not all of, but certainly huge areas of, say, the birth, marriages and deaths uh, records or census records available online, and that you would be able to search them in a matter of seconds, I mean, would have seemed incredible. Um, but at the time, you know, that was the... It's, it's like us looking forward now to what technology is going to be in 20 years' time. Well, we don't bemoan the fact that we haven't yet got that technology because we've got no idea what form it's going to take. So, you know, we're happy with what we've got at the moment. Yeah, that's but very I think, true. Uh... I think it's very easy also to overestimate the... Uh, I think people think now that the internet does everything for you. Well, it doesn't. It's a portal. You've still got to also allow for human error in so far, certainly as, say, the census records go, because the searchable index is manually input by volunteers, and a sterling job they do. I'm not knocking them. But, of course, Sod's law always is that the one name that you're looking for is the one that's been misspelled. I mean, it's like when, you know, the famous example is, is Montague Druitt in the 1881 census. Very hard to find because his surname on the index, which is what you search, is actually down as Druk, D-R-U-K. When you look at the original sheet for Valentine's School, you can see, because it's all handwritten by enumerators, you can, you can perfectly easily see how somebody has read that as D-R-U-K. The I-double-T is all con- you know, conflated together and it looks like a K. Um, and then, of course, let me uh, get let me get the introduction to the show in real quick, um, and then we can carry on, um, just so people <coughs> know who they're listening to and and who's uh, joining us and all that stuff. Okay. Uh, um, so you are listening to In Progress Rippercast, episode nineteen, the case in progress with Chris Scott. Chris Scott is a researcher and author who lately has specialized in tracking down newspaper articles and census data pertaining to the Whitechapel murders and is a co-editor of the website uh, Casebook Jack the Ripper. Um, the books Mr. Scott has authored include 2004's Jack the Ripper, A Cast of Thousands, which is available as a free ebook on the casebook.org website, and 2005's Will the Real Mary Kelly. He is also a contributing editor to Ripperologist magazine and writes the monthly press trawl section for that publication. Uh, he's coming to us from Ramsgate, Kent in the UK, also with us is Paul Begg in Maidstone, Kent in the UK, and Robert McLaughlin's in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I, I do want to get back to what um, you had, where you were talking about the sometimes the trouble in uh, deciphering some of the um, the uh, script in, in those census records, and that well, that, I think, that does I think come up got, often on on some. Well, of I the, think we've got yeah we've got a double problem in that um, there's a certain you know, a significant number of individuals that one's potentially interested in in the, in the Whitechapel case who, because of the ethnic mix in the East End, were of, let's say, predominantly Eastern European extraction. 
Um, and either those names become anglicised or they're... I mean, there was a very heated debate recently which completely baffled me in the sort of venom and the ardour of it on Casebook about the, the spelling of Deemschutz's name. Right. Um, and, you know, the point was made that he's only called Deemschutz in the Times accounts and um, in other accounts like of the court cases, either called Deemschutz or Demschutz or Dimschutz or whatever. So you've got that problem for a start. But as I said, you've then got the added problem that the searchable index, which is what you go to when you're trying to find somebody in the 1891 census or 1901 or whenever, um, is, a, is a compilation, is essentially a database of manually input uh, data by volunteers. St sterling work they do and, it, and mistakes are inevitable. But as I said, it's sold to law, it's nearly always the person that you're looking for. And then, of course, you've got other complications of even non-Eastern European people who've got alternative spellings. I mean, when I was doing the Mary Kelly book, a supreme example is Julia Ventany. Right. Now, you know, the, the, the alternative spelling of that bloody woman's surname drove me mad. I, I never thought I could feel such venom towards a poor woman who'd been dead for so long. Well, I don't know how long she's been dead because I couldn't find her. But she was down as Van Turney and Ven Turney and Ven Tenney. And I, th I found about six. Um, and, of course, another classic one is, um, is Kosminski. I mean, that's unbelievably, uh, you know, unbelievable number of variations. It's with a Z, it's with an I, it's with a, an I on the end, it's with a Y on the end. And, of course, all these things can lead you down blind alleys. And I imagine, like, you get the same problem with uh, common names, that there are just so many oh, people do. with the name, let's say, of, of Kelly or her supposed uh, husband Davis or Davies, you know. Exactly, exactly. Looking for people like that. There's, cer there's certain little tricks you get to know, like, for example, if you were searching, say, for John McCarthy. Now, um, um, hold on a second, Chris. Paul, I just want to check your connection. Because Paul keeps texting me. He's on. Well, I know he can hear us, but we can't hear oh, okay. him is the problem. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, I remember when I was searching. Uh, John McCarthy, of uh, Dorset Street fame, is comparatively easy to find because he was born in France. I mean, most of the McCarthys, most of the McCarthys are Irish. Um, I think we've lost Paul again, haven't we? Yeah, that's okay. Um, it may be Shall I carry on? Yes, carry on, and, uh, and we'll try as to As I said, you, you learn these little tips and wrinkles. Um, for example, when I was searching for, I mean, they, they, often, they often drop the Mac. I mean, quite often, it's like uh, Mrs. Carthy, who was, the, who was allegedly Kelly's landlady in uh, Breezer's Hill. Um, she's almost certainly McCarthy. Whether or not she's related to John McCarthy is a, is a moot question, and I, I really can't comment on that. But... Um, so, if you were looking for John McCarthy, say, in a census, he could be un under Carthy, he could be under McCarthy with a gap, so it would be MC space Carthy. But what the Victorians did quite often was for the C of Mac, they put a, um, an apostrophe. So, it'd be M apostrophe Car uh, Carthy. It's like, the, um, it's like the police officer, McWilliam. I mean, he's often, in, in press accounts, he's done as McWilliam, M apostrophe William. And it's all little sort of wrinkles like that that you learn which can help. Now, the uh, same thing kind of goes uh, for a, a more simpler name like Fleming. Oh, yes. Um, 
but that that can be that's i think that's sometimes not only down to well with fleming you've got the you know the added complication that later in life he adopted another name anyway and we really don't know why um you know named james evans um but the the thing with fleming was again when i was doing the kelly book i thought now do we put him with one m or two that was the main uh, in the end because he's called fleming consistently throughout the press reports with one m that's what i stuck to but in fact his birth is registered with two m's and his father, Richard Fleming, is consistently in the censuses with two M's. So, and, and his mother, uh, Henrietta. So, but as I said with him, there's the added complication of, you know, when and why he changed his name before he was sent to an asylum anyway. Right. And in your, um, in your uh, cast of thousands, um, now that was written before... Um, before... Uh, Mark well, King, the real Mary Kelly. Mark King um, discovered uh, Joseph Fleming in the Claiborne Mental Hospital records. Or? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I've, I've the the book that's coming out very shortly. I've had the chance to update that because Joseph Fleming is one of the characters who I go into, and I've had the chance to incorporate that more up to date uh, material, because um, the one we're waiting for now is it's um, it's called The Ripper in Ramsgate. Uh, all right. And actually. Uh, that's, that's just tracing, you know, what connections there are. I, I stress right from the first sentence of the book that I'm not saying the Whitechapel murderer ever lived in or even visited Ramsgate. It was just to look at what connections there were and not too tenuous connections between the town and, and the murders. Um, I want to go back to uh, Mary Kelly for a second. Uh because actually, because of course, she wrote a, a book on her, well, the real Mary Kelly, and yeah. of course, she's proved you know impossible to find. But yeah. what I found interesting, though, is that you know it's not only her, but some of the people associated with her are are difficult to find. And I'm speaking like of Joe Barnett, George Hutchinson. Uh, you mentioned Thomas Bauer earlier. Um, yeah. the, these think- people around her are also difficult. I'm pretty certain that the. Um I think the Joe Barnett that was identified by um, Bruce Paley is the one. I mean, there were two. There were, there were two books that came out that were specifically... There was the Paul Harrison one and the Bruce Paley one. Now, yes. the, the, the Paul Harrison one, I'm sure, although obviously I respect his research, I'm sure he's got the wrong Barnett. Absolutely certain. Because the Barnett in um, Harrison's book is undoubtedly, beyond any question of doubt, is... Um, is Jewish because all the Barnets in the East End were broadly either of Jewish extraction or of Irish extraction and I think there's absolutely no doubt that the Joe Barnet who lived with Kelly until the 30th of October was Irish in background he's consistently referred to as an Irishman or of Irish extraction so I think the one who was um, identified by Paley and he also did all that sterling research into the fish porter licenses and the Billingsgate connection and all this um is is absolutely right, um, but again, th- there are mysteries. I mean, there there are still loose ends because even though I'm certain that the that the Joe Barnett um, identified by Paley is is the right one, there are still, um, you know, what happened to his mother? She just disappears. There's no death certificate. Um, his sister Catherine. There's only one. She's only mentioned in one census. Haven't been able to find a marriage, and yet she was still obviously around at the time. 
um, because you know he mentions her address at, at Port Paul Lane. All right, can you hear us, Paul? Think so. Oh, there you, you are. Hear me? Yes. Oh, One, wonderful. Right. So you know, it's 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 all little odds. The the two the. There, there's a pair of them. There's, as I said uh, when we were chatting earlier, the, the ones I really would love to go into and find something about are um, Alice McKenzie and John McCormack because I've so far I've been ab able to find absolutely... I mean, I can find John McCormack's. I mean, there are plenty, but there's none that fit what little we know of him. And Alice McKenzie is, is, a, is, is a, an even more impenetrable mystery than, um, than Kelly. But because this aura, this romanticism which has not been aided by, you know, the Heather Graham performance and the 1988 um, Lorimar production. There's this uh, sort of romantic froth and fantasy has been built up around Kelly because she was the youngest and allegedly the prettiest and this, that and the other. And the murder was the most savage. I think this mystique has... She's become a blank canvas and all these preposterous um, sort of excrescences have been built up around her, like the... The um, you know the the royal conspiracy theory and all that, of which she's a sort of central linchpin. And I mean the ending of although although I enjoyed uh, from hell, don't want to digress too much into that. But the um, I mean the way poor Fred Abilene's been treated in both productions. I mean he must be turning in his grave. Yeah. Um, but I mean the the Johnny Depp. Although I like Johnny Depp very much, but I mean and and certain parts of the from hell film some of the set pieces and some of the set design i thought were wonderful but you know to have fred abilene who was this stolid you know uh, policeman who died in bournemouth in in his 80s portrayed as a, you know chasing the dragon this sort of uh, matinee idol looks drug fiend who died in the arms of uh, godly um and you know had a had a burgeoning love affair with mary Kelly, who then went off to ireland to live by the coast in a picture postcard cottage to bring up um, the the uh, the crook child. I mean, I just sat there open mouthed. I, I thought, I can't believe it. You know, where where do we yeah. go from here? Yeah, Abilene's been so misrepresented. I mean, what I found interesting, uh, whether it's the '88 production uh, or the the From Hell, is that neither one had uh, Abilene as being married, even, which oh, I exactly. thought was bizarre. In, um, in From Hell, he's, he's described as widowed. Well, yeah, and as we know, he was actually on his second... He was widowed, but he was exactly. remarried. Oh, no, he definitely was. Oh, no. Um, yeah. But in the, in, the from, in the From Hell one, Johnny Depp, there's one conversation where an, uh, um, he's, you know, he's referred to as being widowed. I think it's one of the conversations he had with Mary Kelly. Um, there's, one, there's one scene, obviously entirely mythical. There's one scene where he sort of sneaks Kelly out of Whitechapel and takes her to... Um, uh, an art gallery it's not specified whether it's the national gallery or and so of course she happens to see uh, a portrait of albert victor and says oh that's him you know in a sort of almost uh not quite a dick van dyke accent but not i'm not knocking heather graham because <laughs> i think she's a lovely actress but you know at the head of the stairs this is very imposing in the full military you know all the red and the the scrambled egg on the shoulders and all this all the full military regalia and she's, God blimey, that's him, God, sort of, you know, almost. <laughs> and I think it's a shame because visually, I mean, parts of From Hell were stunning. And I mean, they went to yeah. such... I know it was based on the graphic novel, the Alan Moore thing, which in itself was obviously a, a, a fictional treatment and a, you know, a gross departure from, from the facts. 
But I find it frustrating because to me the facts are interesting enough to actually make, um, you know, a very interesting... Um, I've never seen, I know this is a common complaint on Casebook, you know, there's always something and you think, why have they done that? Why do they have to make Abilene a drug fiend or in the Michael Caine version, you know, he was a, a real womanizer and he was a drunkard and, you know, he, he woke at the beginning of the Lorimar when he woke up, um, Godly had to go in and, and wake him up. They'd actually stuck him in a cell for the night to sober up. Right. And he and he was having a he was having an affair with this ravishing artist's model. Um, and you think, why do they? You know, why do they have to sort of sex it up like that? His family were very upset. I was in touch with uh, uh, some of his not obviously direct descendants because there aren't no. any, but, uh, no. but uh, a couple of his other descendants uh, at the time uh, when that went out, and uh, they rang me the next day saying they were fairly upset and asking me if there was any evidence that Abilene was a drunk. Was this the, the, the Michael Caine one? Yeah. These, yeah they they, uh, the, the centenary, yeah, the centenary one. That's right, yes. Back in, uh, I mean, again, I mean, uh, and I think the, the thing I always remember from the 1988 one was it was, uh, was one of the most marvellous camp over-the-top performances I have ever seen, which was the guy who played Robert Lee's. Yes. Oh, yeah. It was wonderful. I mean, I was, I was almost wetting myself. It was, it was pantomime. I mean, especially there was one scene where there was Robert Lees and Richard Mansfield together. And, uh, and Richard Lees went off on one. You know, he started having one of his visions. And I, I thought, you know, why have they made him epileptic? Um, I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was so over the top. And it was so camp and so sort of melodramatic. Who played that part? That was, that was, uh, was, well was, it, was it Ken Bones who played that? I can't remember no, the name. No. I, I, what, I, th- I thought what, it was Robert the guy Lees? who was in MASH or something, the movie MASH, but, but not, not the TV. What, Robert uh, Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland? Uh, he yeah, was in... Uh, he, he played, no, he played I, Lee's I in uh, a different... I remember the name uh, of the actor. I remember the name of the actor who played uh, Mansfield in the 1988 one. That was a guy called Armand Asante. That's right, right. Yes. Yeah, he played Mansfield. Yeah, Ken Bones did play uh, Robert Lee's, yeah. I just pulled oh. it up. Uh. Oh, right. I, it, I must have, having, having said all that, sounding hypercritical, both From Hell and the Michael Caine one, I mean, I've watched them both time and time again. You know, I'll, I'll gladly put them on and watch them. But I always, you know, if, if people have said to me, um, and sort of, you know, if the, so, I've got a few friends who, who aren't that, you know, interested in the fact that I'm, so interested in it because um, an ex-flatmate of mine um, uh, he brought a friend around one evening and we were sitting there having a coffee and quite out of the blue and without knowing anything about my interest the, uh, this visitor mentioned Jack the Ripper and my flatmate just groaned and he said oh no <laughs> he, said, he said we're going to be here at least three hours <laughs> if, you, if you want to drink we'd better go now because this is a <laughs> <laughs> but eight o'clock in the evening, and uh, and you know you do have to play it down because I'm I'm such a bloody gabbler and I sort of you know once it's like um, the floodgates and um, and people say and then I'll start talking and then I sort of change tack in mid sentence because I'll say something and I say, oh and and this ex flatmate of mine that the phrase he always dreaded me saying was oh that's interesting. <laughs> 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 
because that meant another sort of two-hour lecture. <laughs> um, what, 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 what's your take on some of the documentaries um, that have been? I mean, to me, I mean, well, yeah. do you know? Go ahead. Do you know the best? Do you know the best one I've seen? Um, well, the one I personally found most interesting, I don't agree with their conclusion, but I thought um, it was a missed opportunity, but I think all of them are in various, in various ways. But there was one that was done, oh, some years ago, because, I mean, he's been dead some time, which was hosted by Peter Ustinov. Yes. And uh, Jan Leeming. And she was sort of the... It was a little bit over-melodramatic. Oh, well, yeah, we go over live now to Jan Leeming at the National Record Office and all this. But of its type, I thought it was actually remarkably well done. Because they had a panel of, I think, either five or six people. They had, um, I can't remember the lady's name, but she was Bill a... Bill Waddell and... Uh, Bill Waddell was there. Yeah. They had a lady who was a high court judge, and I can't remember her name. Um, and they had um, two FBI guys. They, they had two FBI guys there. Um, I yeah, think they, they had, had uh, Robert, Robert Ressler and uh, somebody else. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. And and it was and they went through um, a series of um, I know they had um, Kosminski and um, I think they had Albert Victor in there um, and I think Gull was in there for some peculiar reason. And uh, they Donston went through was about, in there as well. Donston was in. I can't remember where the tumbles he was. I don't know. No, he wasn't. Well, he I think wasn't, it was. Uh, he wasn't known at that time. It was that far back, wasn't it? Yeah, it was nineteen eighty-eight. Was it the really? Same, yeah, same year as the, the, the Michael Caine, because it was never shown really? in this country because uh, Thames <coughs> bought it, uh, yeah. as I understand it, and didn't show it because uh, they'd got the Michael Caine drama going out. Of course, well, it was the centenary year. Was there, that was their big uh, product, because that, that was originally, although I've got it all on one tape now, if I remember rightly, when I watched that originally in 88, I think it went out in either three or maybe even four episodes. I think it was certainly quite a lengthy production. Yeah, the the, the Lorry one. one, yes, I, yeah, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah that, went, that, uh, that was two episodes, I think. They yeah. were too long. I was, and it was on a Sunday evening, I remember it vividly, because I, I said to, you know, in those days, I mean, there wasn't the internet and all that then, but I remember saying to friends of mine, look, between eight and ten or whatever it was, don't phone. If you phone, I'm not going to answer. <laughs> um, now, wasn't there... Um, it, it, uh, moratorium on on uh, mentioning Prince Eddie in connection with the Jack the Ripper case, or is that just uh, my copy of Prince Jack? You know, has this banned in the UK thing on it? Um, no, I think I think that's certainly I've never heard of any. I know the only the only thing I know was that the the palace has consistently, um, the well, the palace officially, as far as I understand it, has always as they do on most things, has simply refused to comment. But they've, they've let it be known privately through what are normally called informed sources that they think that the whole idea is, is nonsensical. But the, 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 I think the official line from Buckingham Palace on the whole idea of Eddie being involved in any way is, is simply, you know, this, it's, it's nonsense. And I'm afraid that's my view as well. Yeah. Right, I wasn't and sure the, if there, if there uh, was a, like a... They, I don't know. I can't recall if it was just that Prince Jack wasn't able to get published in the UK for a while, or. In a, or if, um, I, I don't. I don't think that would be for any kind of sort of. I mean, the British press now, God, you try and keep anything out. Right. I mean, it's. I mean, that would almost smack of the sort of gentleman's agreement there was during, during the abdication uh, abdication crisis. I mean, you know, people in in Britain were virtually the last people. It was being freely reported in America. 
but there was this gentleman's agreement it wouldn't be reported over here well nothing i don't you know the press now is so voracious i can't see anything like that there was there was the in the in the wake of diana's death there was the sort of i suppose you could call a modern version of a gentleman's agreement that the two princes would be comparatively left alone until they were grown up but i mean now you know it's open season and I, I, don't, I don't think anything... The fact that, uh, you know, it was royalty that was, that was mentioned. If anything, I think that would be an incentive now for it to hit the... You know, if you can mix royalty and that's the, the Fairclough book. I mean, it's got the perfect title, you know, The Royal and the Rippers. Sorry, The Ripper and the Royals. I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're combining the two things that are going to guarantee you a headline. Um, back to uh, Kelly. Um Recently, you've been um, you've revived this this whole uh, Tottenham um, connection. Oh yes, yes. Um, can you go into a little bit of that for us? That's listeners? that's an ongoing. What happened was it was quite interesting because it's one of these things you sort of read about that happened to other people, and you're always a little bit skeptical because after the um, after the Kelly book was sort of out and um, you know ticking over, um, you know it's never going to keep me in the style to which I'd like to be accustomed. But you know it's doing okay, um, and. Um, I, I had an email. Um, obviously, somebody had been. It's it's not. I hasten to I hasten to. Add, it's not somebody who's a member of the of um, of Facebook, but they they'd been onto Facebook and uh, private messaged me. Uh, well, rather because <clears throat> you know you can the way I've done it, sort of open access. You can email me from the profile, and I got this um, rather intriguing um, email from a lady um, who lives just north of London who said. Um, basically said you know there's a very strong tradition in my family about mary kelly i've just read your book uh you know would you be interested in talking so i emailed her back and said well could you give me a little bit a little bit of an idea i said you know i don't expect you to spill all the beans in an email but you know i didn't say to make sure it's worth my while following up but you know what i mean and anyway she just said well my basically her great uh, great great grandfather um claimed that he knew um, Mary Kelly. She lived in Tottenham. There was this woman who had been called um, uh, Mary Jane Kelly, and she married s shortly after the murders and became Mary Jane Atkinson, lived in um, South Tottenham and was no well known to this lady's um, great-great-grandfather and grandmother. Uh, and he was, he, was, he was adamant that this was the Mary Jane Kelly from Limerick, and this was the story that this woman told. And it struck me, and I thought, well, there's so many holes in that, it's untrue. But anyway, the lady then phoned me, and she's now become a friend, and she phones me sort of like every couple of weeks. She phoned me actually last week, um, because she's been in touch with her, her oldest surviving relative, who's an uncle of hers. Um, and, you know, stuff's coming out in dribs and drives. I've now got some details, which I'm uh, waiting for a little bit more, about a, a brother of this Mary Kelly, who was called Patrick Kelly. Well, I've got some more information about. Um, and, you know, when I started checking out, um, you know, everything she'd said, not obviously the putative connection, but the, the factual details that she'd given me, um, to my surprise, did check out. Because normally these family stories, including ones in my own family, um, which are not Ripper-related at all, but which I've checked out, there's usually holes in them, and you, but you can see how the misinterpretation has arisen. But, you know, all of the people involved did exist and she married when she said she did and her maiden name was Mary Jane Kelly and she was Irish. Um, her father wasn't called John. Um, he was called Dennis. He was a sergeant major in the army. 
and um, she kindly forwarded part of his army papers on to me. So that's really the state of play at the moment. I mean, it's it's one of these cases where um, the, the the lady involved, um, especially having seen some of the discussions on the message boards, said, um, "Look, I'm quite willing for this to go onto the casebook site, but I the, said the only condition is that please you mustn't include anything which could lead anybody to identify me." She's not she's not doing a Greta Garbo and being over dramatic, but she really she really wants nothing to do with it. She's willing for the information to go out there, but she doesn't want to be pestered. And do you know what I mean? Right. Like some, you, like some of the descendants that uh, Neil Sheldon has contacted. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, any chap, any Chapman and Eddowes exactly. who don't want exactly. to be identified. Exactly. And I think you know there have been other people who've who've been on the have, have even come onto the message boards and sort of either claim to be relatives or descendants. There was some. There was a lady who came on who was. Um, had some family connection with um, John McCarthy, um, and there was some great hoo-ha, and sort of, you know, the the message board imploded, and she buggered off basically, um, and was never heard from again. But without imparting the family information which she said she had, so which I thought was a bit sad, you know, as a bit of a loss. Even if it turned out to be nonsense, if it's given in good faith, I think it deserves investigating. And, and the lady that I've spoken to, who's the source of this Mary Kelly in Tottenham story, um, although, to be frank, and she knows this because I've made it clear right from the beginning, um, I think the historical basis for the story is nonsense. Um, I think it's interesting insofar as it occurred so quickly after the murder. This woman was claiming to be the Mary Kelly of Miller's court fame back in sort of 1891. Because, I mean, the, and the guy who, this um, ancestor of hers, this Alfred Joel, from whom the story came, was absolutely adamant that this, I don't, you know, and I kept saying to, I nearly said her name, but I kept, I keep saying to whenever I speak to her on the phone, I said, you know, do you know why your great-great-granddad was so adamant that this was the Mary Kelly of, of Ripper fame? She said, I don't know. She said, that information is just lost. She said, but he's abs he was absolutely adamant. She heard this story from her, her grandmother. Um, and it it was is, a, it's pretty amazing, though, that all of these well, it, things, all these things are checking out. And, well, there's certain... Well, I mean, that not, in, not, not that to itself, connect yeah, her to itself, Mary Kelly of Miller's Court necessarily, but that, you know, there is this history that you've I mean, been able I to think, uncover I think in what the census. We, I think what we've probably got is, um, you know, a lively account of a fantasist. I think this woman who lived in um, Tottenham, uh, Mary Jane Atkinson, as she was by then, and she lived through into the 1920s. Um, I think we've got, you know, a lively imagination. It was three years after the murders. Um, whether she was, like, dining out on it or just being a Walter Mitty character, who knows? Yeah. But, the, you know, the two things that intrigue me are the very bizarre circumstances surrounding the death of um, this lady's ancestor, the one who, from whom the story originates... Um, in that he was a carpenter, and again, she sent me a copy of his death certificate and, um, I've, and a local press account of the inquest, which verifies exactly what she said. <coughs> he was a master carpenter and joiner, um, and, he, and he was working for another company in, um, in um, Tottenham, um, and he hanged himself in 1896 in his 30s. I think he was 37, this Alfred Joel. But the bizarre thing is that before... The last thing he did before he hanged himself was he made his own coffin. Yeah. 
which I find incredibly bizarre. But but to, but you'd sort of expect that of in of a Victorian. Uh, you wouldn't expect pre- it today, though. I presume so. Yes, but I mean, I know they had a very. But no, the thing that um, you know, making coffins was not his normal. He was a jobbing household carpenter, even though a master one. He was basically a cabinet maker. I mean, he wasn't this. Um, I don't know how the hell he hid it, but apparently, the, the, you know, this works where he worked. They did not make coffins. It wasn't like his normal job, and he had to make one for himself. It was obviously like a special project, and then, you know, he, whether he left a note or whatever, but it was made clear that, um, you know, this coffin was um, for him, and then he hanged himself at the place where he worked. Right now, In, it could have been to spare his family the expense. I don't know if... Um, what, oh, if, quite. I, th- I think they had a much more practical. Some, some, you know. I think some people now find the Victorian atti- attitude towards death, you know, macabre or you know, even ghoulish. You know, the idea of um, we 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 become so sanitised and removed from it. You know, the idea of um, say a wake, you know, with the the coffin open, and you go up and you either kiss the corpse or even see the corpse. Um, let alone, you know, obviously the you know the details of things like the Ripper murders. I think you know we're so sanitised and divorced from. Death. I mean, large number of people I know have probably never even seen a corpse. Not that I wish it on them, but of course, I think in Victorian times it would have been much more common occurrence. Yeah. Irrespective of violence, I don't mean that you know you'd walk out and fall over a, a ripper or similar type victim, but if, even if there was a, a bereavement in your own family, you know it would be much more common to actually see the corpse as as a physical act. Whereas I think these days, I think it's very unusual. And I think a lot of people feel very uncomfortable with it. I mean, when I worked in a hospital, when I was a student, I worked as a, a hospital cleaner during the in Hammersmith Hospital, which is right next door to Wormwood Scrubs, um, during the three years when I was at uni. And there were three areas of the hospital where they only relied on volunteers. This was nights. Uh, that, that was the mortuary, casualty, as it, uh, A&E as would now be, and the operating theatres. They never insisted that anybody worked there. It had to be volunteers. And they had hell's own job to get anybody to um, clean the mortuary. Um, I mean, it was... They asked, I did it for one week when the, the normal guy was away. And I, I, I simply said, you know, it's, it's the living who worry me, not the dead. You know, it's like, walking, <laughs> it's, like a, it's like walking through a churchyard at night. I mean, I've got no qualms about it. I mean, they're lying there quietly doing whatever they're doing. And I'm walking through, you know, if they don't worry me, I won't worry them. Um, Robert, yes, I'm still trying. I'm trying to reconnect with Paul. We're having connection problems, obviously. Oh, it's a shame. With, with Paul, hopefully, sure. Hopefully, he won't give um, up on us, and we'll try to get him back. So. Yeah, because uh, before you went off on a tangent, because as as you said, you do that when you speak about the Ripper. Oh, I do. Um, uh, in your book, well, the real Mary Kelly, you uh, identified a Mary Ann Kelly. You had links to. Uh, oh, Carnivon and Flint, Flint, I believe, and yeah, um, yeah. I, I was wondering if you've like pers- kept pursuing her, like since since you published uh, about three years ago. <coughs> no, I think what what it was was that the I think all that I from the sources that I had then, and because of her lowly station in life, I mean, she's not likely to be mentioned in unless she did anything wrong. The only sources of information were the census and the births, marriages, and deaths. And I think, you know, I'd, I'd traced her as far as I could. And I wanted to make it clear, and I hope it, I, you know, I hope I did make it clear in the book, that I wasn't, 
I wasn't putting her forward as a, even a remotely possible Kelly candidate. It was more an object. Yeah, they, yeah. it's very clear it in the book, ob- yeah. It's more an object lesson saying, you know, the, of all the criteria we have, if you take the Barnard accounts, both the inquest one and the police statement, and you take the various peripheral accounts, and you, you lump those together, um, you know, who is there anybody who comes even remotely close to fulfilling those? And, of course, she doesn't. All it, all it was was that she was the only one who came remotely close. You know, she didn't marry a Davis. She didn't marry, a, you know, a minor who was killed three, two or three years later. There's no, sh- there's no proof she came to London in 1884, whatever. So I think it was both a sort of demonstration of, of in some ways, of how weak the, the Barnett account is in, purely in research terms, in terms of what you can verify, which is zilch. Um, and also, you know, it's this thing about putting a, a, a name in the frame, and it's it's all a question of, 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 of percentages. And well, is she more likely? Is she, I mean, you know, we found. Um, I mean, AP Wolf did it. You know, when we were going through the the infirmary registers, you know, you can you can find a, a prostitute called Mary Kelly who's approximately the right age, and everybody gets excited. But I mean, to me in itself, that's not that particularly significant because it's it's not that uncommon a name. Certainly, Mary Jane wasn't, um, and the having done the Kelly book and having sort of carried around tinkering, you know, with various bits of sort of Kelly-related material since. Um, and I said, actually, in one of the threads on the case book, the, I think the inevitable conclusion, which is, I think a lot of people are reluctant to accept because it seems to come down like a brick wall, is that her name was not Mary Kelly. Her yeah, that's probably a good bet. Yeah, that's probably a good bet. And I think, well, yeah, I think it's, I think the stage we've got to now, I think, is almost a damn certainty, because every avenue that people have tried, um, you know, has drawn a blank. Um, You know, the uh, Cardiff Infirmary doesn't check out, Davis, you know, the Collier doesn't check out, Uh, Barnett was insistent that, you know, the amount of, when you first read, and as I said this in the Kelly book, when you first read the Barnett account, and say his, um, if you take in tandem his um, inquest statement and the police statement, when there are slight variances but nothing material, um, then, you know, you tend to get excited and you think this is great because, you know, this is one victim where we know a hell of a lot about. There's a hell of a lot here to get my teeth into as a researcher. And then, of course, it's doubly frustrating because you get nowhere. And, you know, absolutely nothing. And he's so specific and he's so precise in his alleged information. You know, he says um, she married when she was 16. She was legally married and her maiden name was Kelly. He says all those things quite specifically. And you think, good. You know, if she was 25 years old, she was born in 1863, i.e. she married in 1879. Bingo. You know, look for Mary Kelly who married to Davis or Davies in 1879. Bob's your uncle, and of course there isn't one. So, you know, it's that. Either what she told him was a load of twaddle, or was it slightly... Once you get into this thing about, you know, embellishment, and we know they weren't above it. It's like, the, you know, I always compare it with the Princess Alice thing that Stride told. With Elizabeth Stride, exactly. Which we know was, was, was uh, factually, was nonsense. I mean, you can see probably why she did it. You know, it was a you know a tearjerker. It's probably to elicit sympathy, but there again, there's the question of if that was so, then why is there no record of her making a claim on the quite substantial fund that was raised? You know, for the uh, for the victims and their families, because presumably because of her sort of precarious 
financial hold on life and the fact that she went to the Swedish church on more than one occasion and received financial support. You'd have thought that at the time of the, in the aftermath of the Princess Alice disaster, if she was telling this story at that time, and of course we have no evidence that she was, because the only evidence we have is later, you know, around the time of the murders, and that, that she had told this, but we don't know how long previously. We don't know whether she started this telling this story shortly after the disaster or, you know, whether she thought it was a good money spinner. Because I presume, she, you know, she would have looked at the, or had had read to her, because, you know, there's this thing about the literacy of the victims again. But there, again, it was a blank canvas, because there was this list of, um, of identified and unidentified victims published, certainly in the Times, but I can't imagine that Liz Stride is a Times reader. Um, but this would have been read out, so they may even have been posted up in public, because they invited people to go along and view the, the, uh, the bodies of those who hadn't been identified. Um, but, I mean, we know her husband was still alive anyway, John Stride. Until, so, yeah, uh, what, 1884. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, th I think the problem is trying to decide to what degree and with what motive uh, Kelly was fantasizing or covering up or simply building a mystique around herself or, you know, if, if her past, as related by Barnett, was completely and utterly invented, then, you know, the obvious reason is why. You know, what had Kelly got to hide? Um, but I think that there are little snippets that, you know, come from other people. Obviously, in terms, say, of a percentage, 90, 95% of what we allegedly know about Kelly comes from Barnett. That's not surprising. You know, they've been to living together as de facto husband and wife for 18 months. But... There's the unnamed city missionary. There's various women that she knew. Um, you know, all these accounts, you know, they do... You know, the, the background in Wales is confirmed from one source. The letters coming from Ireland, the connection with Limerick is confirmed by the city missionary, you know, who said he'd seen letters from Kelly's mother, and so, and, you know, and so on and so forth. So I, th I, I, think, I don't think you can doubt that she told that story to Barnet. I don't think... Barnet made the story up. I think, you know, you then have to go back one remove and say, you know, did Barnet relate that at the inquest in good faith, believing what Kelly had told him? There are discrepancies, as I said, but, um, and there's intriguing little snippets, like the time when um, Barnet says that, and this wasn't in the inquest testimony, it was in one of the press interviews of Barnet, they tracked him down to a pub near the, um, the lodging house where he was staying, and Barnett says two sort of very interesting things. One is that on one occasion, uh, Kelly's father came to London looking for her. And she found out about this and hid. Now, whether that gives a clue as to why, you know, all this invention. And the other one uh, was that in the same interview, he said quite specifically that the brother who was in the army, who in one version is called Henry, the one who was nicknamed Jonto, uh, did, uh, at least on one occasion, did come and visit Kelly. So there's, that's the only sort of very tenuous evidence you have for any kind of links with her family. Which, of course, then leads on to the off, often asked question, you know, why did no member of her family show up for the funeral or come forward when, you know, the fact that she'd been living a disreputable life as an unfortunate, um, you know, the other four victims had, but still friends and relatives came forward and tried to give them a, as decent a burial as they could. There's also a story about letters being left behind. 
from her family. Isn't that true? Yes, uh, there's there was there was stories of um, I think at one time McCarthy claimed to have right. or to to have received letters, which he then passed on to. I don't know whether I don't know whether she used the shop in, uh, you know, number twenty seven as a, a sort of post restaurant, as like a PO box. But, but then he, if she had, they, he did claim they were from Ireland. Yes, he claimed yeah. they. Well, one of them, uh, the one account of it, he actually specifically claimed they were from her mother. Yeah. Um, which again which I mentioned in the Kelly book, you then get into this tortuous speculation. And because it's so ill-informed, you can never resolve it as to, you know, when did they come to Wales? When, when could you logically expect to pick up Kelly in the, say, the census? If she was born in 1863, which is by no means certain, because the, the fact that she's, you know, 25 and a death certificate is only, a, is only speculation. Um, because it includes both of the surnames, you know, she's down as, um, and, and also the, the, the Franco form of her name is down as given by Barnett. She's down as Marie Jeanette uh, Kelly, um, also Davies, you know, on the death certificate. But if she was born in 1863, then, you know, Barnett, these nebulous phrases, he said she was brought to Wales when, when very young. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean two, three, five, six... You know, if, so if you if she was born in 1863, then she should be in the Welsh census in 1871 because she'd have been about eight years of age. But just none of these things is so frustrating because none of these things tie up, and this is why I think she's become such a sort of object of desire for researchers. And I don't. But there are the, those little clues, the letters, um, and um, and her brother supposedly. I mean, that does kind of it. If if there's you know let's say she this woman invented the name Mary Jane Kelly, yeah. um, it could still point to something um, of a of an immigrant um, from either Ireland or Wales oh, as, as opposed to like a born and raised in East en, in the East End I mean, and totally if, fabricating her background. So there's if the if the name if the name Mary Jane Kelly is is a I was going to say a nom de plume but nom de guerre or whatever you want to call it is an alias. Um, even if all the rest of what she told Barnett is substantially true, or even totally true, if her name was, you know, if she was Jane Doe, and then, you know, married in 1879, married David, it's going to make, it's still going to make her incredibly hard to find, because you've just got nothing to go on. Because if if the surname was invented, then obviously some of the information coming from Barnet, like that all the information about her father, certainly his name, he I mean he specifically says he was called John Kelly, he worked as a gauger in an ironworks in Carmarthen or Carnarvon, so on and so forth. Well there's no indication when he died, but as I said there's this interview with Barnet when he said the father came to London looking for her, which obviously suggests a family rift. And if the letters were true, as I, I said in the Will the Real Mary Kelly, the most likely scenario to me, and it is, and I, I always try to emphasize, you know, almost feel like putting it in capital. But this is speculation. But the most likely scenario seemed to me, and there's absolutely no evidential basis for saying this, was that Mary Kelly came to London from Wales, uh, presumably to go into service or to follow some kind of respectable, um, you know, with her family's blessing. I mean, my grandmother did the same, and we lived in Surrey. When she was only 14, she moved to London and went into service um, in the very early 1900s. Now, if Kelly had done that and had been keeping in touch with her parents by letter, 
but had fallen on bad times, shall we say, and had ended up in Whitechapel in the street, well, on the street, rather, um, then, you know, that she may have been lying to her parents, oh, everything's fine, I found these lovely employers and this, that and the other. Uh, Dad might have found out, came steaming up to London to find out what on earth was going on. That's why she hid, because, you know, she was ashamed of what she'd become. But again, that is utter and complete guesswork. Right. And another yeah. possibility of the hundreds is, is that she had a background similar to Catherine Eddowes, um, in that uh, she, you know, could have been from a large family. Uh, oh, yes. Who's, who's, uh, yes. And maybe her father was a widower, yeah. and the, the kids were split up. Mm. You know, and she was sent at a young age to learn yeah. the trade, but drifted into prostitution. Um, exactly. In a similar situation to Eddowes. So. I, I, I find it hard. To, uh, if somebody, somebody of Kelly's position in life, um, of her, you know, social status, economic status, I'm talking about by 1888. I know she claimed to have been of a sort of much higher status when she was in the, quote, gay house in the West End and went to France and all this and went around in a carriage. But I'm talking about, the, you know, latter days in Whitechapel. Um, if she wanted to assume an alias, and considering the number of people in the case that, you know, we only really know by nicknames, and they all had, well, they're not all, but, you know, a lot of them had nicknames. There was Pearly Poll and Long Liz and Fair Emma and all this. I find it hard to understand why she would have gone into such incredible detail you know, to have invented a whole family and the Welsh connection and a, an occupation for her father and the name of her husband and how she got widowed and then the trip to Cardiff and all this. Right. Um, either she was a sort of pathological liar and a sort of female Walter Mitty and ended up believing this cock and bull story herself or the story was substantially true and the only thing that was changed was the name. But, of course, the name is the linchpin, and without the name, it makes tracing the rest incredibly hard because, sod's law again, you know, she has to go and marry a bloody Davis in Wales, which is one of the most common, you know, if she'd married somebody with a much less um, unusual, you know, trying to track down, if, if the story is substantially true and her name's not Mary Kelly, you've then got to sort of look at it obliquely, sort of lateral thinking, and think, well, how can I, I'm now looking for... A minor called Davis, who married in 1879 or thereabouts, who died in 1881 or 1882 in some kind of a pit-related explosion, whose wife was 16 when he married him, who came from Ireland, and it makes it near impossible to trace. And Fleming, um, he, uh, he was around 20, in his late 20s when um, he would have been hooked in with Mary Kelly. Um, I believe his age was given maybe as 28 when uh, he was in the Whitechapel workhouse um, in 89. Um, so, I mean, you're talking about a pretty young couple there. Yeah, I think there's, there's, there's a huge undercurrent with Fleming. As I said, I, I think I remember saying in the book, you know, he's the one character that I'd love to know a hell of a lot more. Uh, fortunately, through you know some great research since, we found out a lot more, especially about the latter part of his life. Um, and again, there's this mystery of why he, shortly after the murders, um, adopted a, um, you know, an alias. You know, became James Evans. Um, and we don't know at what stage or for what reason. Especially, you know, his mother, 
is still on the patient records, the paperwork his mother is still referred to by her real name. On his death certificate, it, goes, it gives both names. You know, it says James Evans, also known as Joseph Fleming. Right. Um, and... But no, he's a, he's a, he's an intriguing character because it, although you know we can find him in the records and we can trace him and uh, you know we can trace him in various censuses. We know about his family. We know where he came from, where he was born, and uh, you know he was a plasterer. Um, and without getting too Mills and Boone or Barbara Cartland about it, it's very, very easy again using Kelly as a blank canvas to read this great torrid romance into it. Whereas it might have. It might have been a quite a, an abusive relationship. But what, what intrigues me are the hints from the people around Kelly and Miller's court who said, you know, oh, yeah, she, she knew another Joe. She was very fond of him. Um, and he still used to see her and he used to give her money. Um, and then another witness says, oh, yes, he, he used to knock her about as well. He, well, he ill-used her, I think was the phrase. Um, and then the one that really intrigues me is this... Um, uh, and I've only ever seen it in one source, was this newspaper account. It was, a, <clears throat> it was an interview with Mrs. Carthy. And, and that pleased me because, you know, there's these previous landlords and landladies of Kelly's, um, one of whom was the very oddly named Mrs. Buki, um, who we've never been able to trace. Uh, but Mrs. Carthy, who lived in um, Breezers Hill, was actually tracked down and interviewed uh, when I read that interview, because there was lots in there, and I thought, oh, that's it. You know, again, that dreaded phrase of mine, all oh, that's interesting. Because she, she confirmed that there was a, a strong relationship between Kelly and Joseph Fleming. She actually specifically said in the interview that she thought that Fleming wanted to marry her, which I thought was quite interesting. And then also there's this very mysterious incident of Kelly turning up on... Mrs. Carthy's doorstep shortly before the murder with a strange man. Now, that's always intrigued me because I'd love to know who that was. Right. Because, you know, she turns, up, she turns up at two o'clock in the morning. And again, like, like Barnett with his phrase, very young, Mrs. Carthy uses this phrase shortly before. And she says, shortly before the murder, um, Kelly, who had been away from the area of, you know, around the Ratcliffe Highway for in excess of 18 months, suddenly out of the blue, just, be, well, sometime shortly before the murder, use her phrase, Kelly turns up on her doorstep at two o'clock in the morning with a man, with a man that Mrs. Carthy didn't recognise, um, and asked if she could have a bed for the night. Right. Which, which I find very, very strange. I don't think it could be Joseph Fleming, because from the way the earlier part of the... Um, interview is, is worded, it sounds almost certain that Mrs. Carthy knew Joseph Fleming, at least by sight. So it's unlikely it was him. Um, why on earth would it be Joseph Barnett? I mean, if she was by that time living up in Miller's Court, and there's, there's certainly no mention that I've ever heard of that, you know, in, in the period immediately preceding the murder, that she was at any stage by McCarthy either evicted or locked out. Right. Uh, that you know, why why would she walk all the way from um, Dorset Street right down to Breezers Hill, right down by the Ratcliffe Highway? And it's it's a hell of a way. Two you know, at two o'clock in the morning with a strange man. And why would she ask for a room for the night? 
again, there's these frustrating unspoken. Yeah, it makes you wonder. Um, I know. What about the what about the man uh, Morgan Stone or Morgan Stern? Complete mystery, unless you um, there's the, the only the only sort of putative um, identification is a Dutch one. It's either either um, either Barnet and Barnet's the only source for that name. Um, either yeah. Barnet either Barnet misheard it. Um, the two possible variants, and I don't personally find um, either particularly convincing, uh, is Morgan Stern, S-T-E-R-N, or Morgan Steen, S-T-E-I-N. Uh, there was a Morgan Steen traced in the right sort of area, but he just doesn't ring true because, you know, he was there in the 1881 census, he was in the 1891 census. He appears to be a happily married man with kids, you know. He's living with his wife in 1881. He's living with his wife in 1891. You know, there's, he, could have, he could have either had a bit on the side, to use a horrible phrase, or, you know, the marriage could have broken down temporarily around the time when he allegedly knew Kelly, which presumably was sometime around 1885. Um... Then, but you know, I just I, I don't know. Is is uh, you know we've even I say we because I've done, but I know certainly other people. The other possibility is that um, um, Barnett heard it all as one word, but they were talking about a man called Morgan Stone. You know, Stone was the surname. But again, the the only one in the area at that time was about two years old. I think there was there was a Morgan Stone in approximately the right area, but he was an infant. So I, I think you know what Morganstone is one of these complete mysteries. Um, back, in, uh, back to Joseph Fleming, real quick. Um, in that, um, there seems to be correct me if I'm wrong about a uh, thirty-year gap in in his records. Um, he uh, he's admitted to the infirmary in November of 1889 for an injured yeah. leg, um, yeah. down as a boot maker. I believe, or something like his his occupation may have changed, um, because he it seems like he this is uh, irrelevant to my point. But I think he was, he, he I was think a he dock was, laborer, and then he was recorded as a boot maker, and then he's back as a dock laborer. Yeah, I know. I know on his death certificate, he's, on his death certificate, definitely he's down as um as a just as a dock laborer. Right, and so um, he um, and he's living at the Victoria Home on Commercial Road when he's admitted to the uh, infirmary in in eighty nine. Um, and then which, when he, uh, and then he which smacks of George Hutchinson, right? That's that was what I was going to bring up. Is that yeah. there? Uh, yeah. Then um, the uh, initially he's he's sent to the City of London Asylum at Stone in in 1895, yeah, and then transferred to Clayberry, which is yeah. in Romford, which is where he died, which is where he died. So in the uh, the 1920s, coming exactly 1926, was it? Um, yeah, I believe he was. Um, well, the he died the, um, in 1920, I believe. Um, but um, but so yeah, there's this there's there's uh, on the message board speculation. Oh, Joseph Fleming living in Victoria home, transferred to Romford, where he yeah. dies. You know, does smack of George Hutchison. Do you yeah. have any opinions on that? Pending in that, and I, to my shame, I cannot remember. I'm terrible. I can remember names to do with the Ripper case, but when it comes to friends or, um, I can't remember the name of the researcher who established the link between Fleming and Evans. Who was it? 
Mark uh, Mark King. That's it. Um, well, he obviously had access to the initial patient records when Fleming was, um, because he mentions them in his posts, uh, when, he, when um, Fleming was um, admitted to Stone, which is also in Kent. Stone's near Dartford. Um, but I'm in the process, I have actually emailed them twice now, um, the, um, the, the PCT, which is uh, NHS gibberish for the Patient Care Trust, um, under whom, because Claybury Hospital has now ceased, um, it, it, it survived a remarkably long time, I think it was still going up into the 1970s or 80s, but I'm, I, I'm trying to track down the patient records for Evans stroke Fleming when he was at Claybury. Because what I haven't seen listed anywhere is what condition he was actually diagnosed with. Right. He was obviously, I mean, he was, um, he was certainly a long-term inmate. I mean, he was, um, you know, he, he, was, he was in a, a, an institution of some kind for the best part of 30 years. Right. So, I mean, there must be something there. So I'm in the process, and I'm hoping to get uh, transcripts of those in the fairly near future. But anything to do with the NHS... Um, moves incredibly slowly. Um, I think he was, uh, yes, 23rd. Um, he was a tubercular. Um, yes, he had, he had, um, anyway. hang on a minute, I can tell you. Um, I believe that was the cause of his death, tuberculosis. Yes, it was... uh, Easily something he could have picked up in the hospitals. Yes, he was down. It was 28th of August, 1920. Joseph Fleming, otherwise James Evans, male, 65 years. He was actually 61, uh, because he was born in 1859. Uh, From City of London Union Infirmary, previous address unknown, dock labourer, cause of death, pulmonary tuberculosis. Six months and 13 days. Um, and I found him, he's also listed in the Claybury Asylum uh, in the 1901 census. He's just down as a 45-year-old dock labourer born in Bethnal Green. Under James Evans? Under James Evans. Yeah, he's, also, he's under James Evans in the... Because um, one of the projects I did some time back was transcribing the admissions registers uh, from the Whitechapel Infirmary for the, for the period of 1888 and into 1889. Um, and at that stage, when I started that project, which was about two years ago, uh, which I posted onto the casebook, I didn't know about this link between... Because then somebody else, you know, this, this research about Fleming stroke Evans was posted elsewhere on casebook, and then somebody suddenly said, well, hang on, you know, even this, because one of the things I said was, you know, it, it's not clear as to when Fleming became Evans or whatever. Then somebody pointed out that there were two, um, at least two um, entries on the what I was posting of the of the right age. Um, one was on the twenty third of May, eighteen eighty eight. There's a James Evans, age twenty eight. Um, his address is down as 16F, 16F Block, Royal Mint Street, and he's down as a porter. Um, and he was uh, brought in with uh, as unsound mind. Hmm. And then the 3rd of July, there's a James Evans, age 28, specifically down as a ra- railway porter. 
16 F block Glass Street. So the number is, is the same. It's a rather distinctive number, you know, 16 F block. And he's down as insane. But this he's is discharged. In 1888. Yeah, is this is. Uh, the second admission was on the 3rd of July, 1888. And he specifically, the condition was listed as insane. But he was discharged. And it doesn't say that he was discharged to the either Claybury or, you know, any of the Banstead or Colney Hatch. It just says discharged. So right. presumably at liberty on the 9th of July. So he was only there for six days. But then Joseph Fleming is admitted under Joseph Fleming. Yes. On 16 November 1889 for injuring his leg. Yes. And, and that's, so whether when, he, that's when the Victoria Home Address is given. That's right. Um, so you've got these two names, or potentially, if, if the James Evans, who's listed twice in uh, two months... Uh, for obvious mental problems, if, if that is Fleming, then he, it suggests he, he may have been, for whatever reason, using the name of Evans before the murders, rather than changing his name for reasons unknown afterwards. Right. But again, it's only a possibility, because it depends on whether you accept that the identification of those two entries in May and July of 1888, whether that James Evans, 28-year-old porter, is the same as the James Evans, who was previously jo Joseph Fleming. But I think he's quite an important character, and I'm, I'm really itching to get my hands on if they still exist, you know, the patient records, just to find out what his behaviour was. Because, I mean, you've got nearly 30 years' worth, presumably, of asylum records or inmate records, uh, just to see exactly what he was up to and what the diagnosis was. Right, it it would be really interesting. Now, Robert McLaughlin had to leave, um, so it's down to just you and I. Okay. Um, I did want to um, ask you, um, with the uh, research in researching the census records, I mean, uh, I don't know if, if uh, a lot of people, you know, I get the impression sometimes, and this is not my impression, that on the message board sometimes pe uh, people kind of glaze over when they see ream after ream of census records you know um it's um but is it is hugely interesting in my opinion oh, I'm sure, no i'm sure they do um, um i th i think it depends on i i mean it's such a huge field of study i mean it it goes back to this i don't know if you've seen this recent thread which is rather unfla unflatteringly called um jack the ripper for dummies there was this suggestion that there should be a sort of primer a sort of beginner's guide yeah. Um, and I think that's got some merit, but, you know, my, my take on that is that this field has only become so huge because we've made it so. You know, there are, there are by definition, there are huge areas of so-called Ripper studies that, if all truth were known, are completely irrelevant because the person in question has nothing to do with the case. You know, all of the research to do with Donston is highly interesting and gripping, and he's obviously a rather strange individual. But if you accept that he had nothing whatever to do with the Whitechapel murders, from the point of view of priming somebody on the Jack the Ripper case, it's entirely irrelevant. Personally, I think all the Sickert-related um, research is irrelevant, I don't, think, I don't mean it's irrelevant in its own right. I think it's fascinating in its own right because he's a very, very intriguing individual. But just from the very narrow, blinkered perspective of 
you know, trying to find out what facts, in inverted commas, there are to do with the, um, the Whitechapel murders, you know, it's, it's very hard to keep that tunnel vision, especially if somebody like me, you get so easily diverted. But I can understand somebody's eyes glazing over or mentally glazing over. Um, but there are other sort of nerds like me who like to, you know, pick over the bones of... Um, and it's the, the, the joy of a site like Casebook is that you can pick and choose. You know, if quite often when I, when I log on to my PC in the mornings and I go to the Casebook site, obviously, you know, the first thing you click on is today's posts. And there'll be whole areas that I never look at because right. I, I'm, I'm really not interested. And that, again, that's not in a derogatory way, but, you know, we're all made differently. On, we've, we've all got different focus. Right. Now, but um, back to what you were saying about... Um uh, being dismissive of Sickert and Donston and such. Yeah. Uh, at the same token, um, you've done um, census research into um, Francis Coles and and uh, oh yeah Elizabeth Jackson. One of, um, I've done uh, victim. Well, no, I've done a, uh, yeah, so, I've done a lot of sen- I've done a, a lot of census research on Donston. I mean, yeah. Without without blowing my own trumpet, I think you know the the one find that I'm most proud of is you know is Donston's death certificate. You know his date of death because that was previously unknown. Right. Uh, um, in 1916, and it was t- two books previously published on Donston. Um, had, had specifically said that, you know, no record could be found and no record did exist and did he go to the continent, did he move to America? But um, So, because I, because my own sort of interest and my own sort of research interests are not suspect-based, I find that incredibly liberating because it means I can go where I want. You know, if I suddenly, if I feel in a sickert mood, I can... Um, but that's because I'm also interested in Sickert as an artist. I'm not only interested in him, I'm not even primarily interested in him as a potential ripper suspect, because I don't think he is. But, I, you know, he's an incredibly influential, um, you know, 20th century, and he happened to live two miles from where I live anyway. Um, and I know people who knew him. And, you know, all those things tie into me much more um, immediately and of much more interest to me than any potential connection to the Ripper case. I think Sickert was deeply interested in the Ripper case, but all this, I've got to choose my word carefully. Um, I was going to say twaddle. Um, because I've, so much has been said that has got to me, has got absolutely no evidential value, because once you start analysing paintings, and once you start reading meaning into paintings, and once you start reading meaning into titles of paintings that delib- uh, I mean Sickert had a really impish and almost childish sense of humour and these I mean his the titles to his paintings were deliberately obscure and probably meaningless in some cases and when you start subjectively analysing paintings towards a particular goal I think you're on very dangerous territory when it comes to actually proving a line of argument because when I watch the TV programme I really don't want to get draw- drawn into the Patricia Cornwall debate because it's it's something upon which, to be quite frankly, I haven't really got very strong feelings. I've read the book. Um, I don't agree with the argument. Um, but when I saw the TV program, and that these, I know the editing of TV programs is very different from reading a fully developed argument in a book. But the way that that was presented to me was completely the opposite of the way that I think evidence should be approached because she she gave a, a, a quite a touching background to the beginning of the case and she said that you know she was motivated to 
to bring some closure, this awful modern word, bring some closure to these women who had been victims and that too often they were forgotten and, you know, they were real flesh and blood creatures who walked the streets and this and the other and they had a very hard life. Well, I think, you know, if she'd actually looked at Casebook, I think that's mentioned remarkably often in Casebook and they are respected. Right. Um, and then she, using obviously a theatrical analogy from... Again, we come back to this, what was mentioned right at the beginning, this theatrical connection, because obviously Sickert had that, you know, with his Nemo and his acting connections. And she's, But I remember her quite distinctly the phrase, because it, it made me think immediately, this was like into the first five minutes of the programme, she said, oh, and there was a suspect waiting in the wings. I thought, well, no, no, that's entirely wrong. You don't sort of look around for a suspect and then marshal what facts you can to condemn them. You look at the facts first and see where they lead you, if anywhere. And I, I defy anybody to assemble, you know, to go to Stuart's book on the, you know, the ultimate source book on this, that and the other. Go, to go to the primary source material of what evidence there is, I defy anybody to be led from that to Sickert. I just don't think it's possible. Right. You know, uh, what, what, what she's done is, is pick the suspect first and work backwards. Right, and, and a suspect that... Uh, uh, everyone knows has had been presented before um and and you know in a completely, I, I, completely I think, unbelievable setting now yes i think i mean you know there had been previous you know there'd been the um uh Sickert and the ripper murders and you know the the florence passion all that stuff um and undoubtedly Sickert was um certainly in his later life a rather eccentric character and i think he was always a little um, in the artistic sense of the word bohemian. I mean, he, I think he reveled in the, you know, being an artist and being on the fringes of sort of respectable society and being able to go, you know, as an artist because he was considered or expected to behave oddly and in a bohemian way. He could go to places where a more respectable person, you know, he could go to gin palaces and he could go to music halls and he could go to low dives and he could go to theatres and paint and all this. And really, nobody would turn because it was part of his of his image, you know, the sort of eccentric artist. Whereas, if a gentleman, I know they used to go slumming in the East End, but um, and I think he he certainly had a rather macabre interest, certainly in the Camden Town murders. Right. But and you know, various stories. If you believe the you know the Osbert Sitwell story about you know his version of the of the Lodger, which was the one that the uh, Hitchcock film was based on, the the Bellock Lounge. Right. Um, the Mornington Crescent one. But that in itself, I mean, is not remarkable or condemnatory any more than, you know, she makes great play of the fact that he did um, the painting, a painting of Jack to, the Ripper's yeah, Bedroom. Which he specifically entitled Jack the Ripper's Bedroom. Um, but I think in terms of actually value as evidence, I mean, it's nil. I mean, you can read into that painting what you want. Right, I mean, and, and, and uh, her, census, census records shows that um, there was a, another lodger uh, at, that now I'm going off of memory here, but uh, uh, as far as the story of his lodger, um, this, the story that Sickert was told when he was renting the room yeah. that yeah. supposedly depicts what later became in the painting, Jack the Ripper's yeah. bedroom, was not... Yeah. The uh, veterinary student, I believe, uh, in the story, um, it just didn't match up. 
the description well, of the <clears throat> lodger that that Sickert occupied the bedroom of. I think. And, I and think. The, uh, yeah, I think what annoyed me in that passage was I think Cornwall either deliberately, possibly not deliberately, I've got to be very careful what I say, but the, the, I think the import of that title was misinterpreted, let's say, put it that way, because her argument appears to be that because that painting entitled Jack the Ripper's Bedroom was a painting of Sickert's own room at Mornington Crescent, she therefore read into it, i.e., Sickert equals Jack the Ripper. Right. Which is missing, I, missing the point. I, uh, I, she's missing about three steps. Out. You know, what, to me, the point is, Sickert was obviously intrigued by this story, I presume, you know, and, you know, the, the elderly couple had allegedly said to him, um, oh, you know, do you know, do you know who lodged in your room, you know, some years ago? Right. So what he was saying was that, uh, you know, Jack the Ripper equals previous occupant of room now occupied by equals, you know, uh, yeah. Walter Stone. Yeah, that, that's... Not, not that. you know, you're going straight from A to Z instead of, you know, having all the intervening steps in between, which I think is a bit, um, a bit naughty. And, I mean, I've never... I'm always... It's like when you go to... This is going to sound like a very, very strange analogy... I'm always wary. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not a great believer in the supernatural. I know some people on Casebook are, and I respect anybody's beliefs. But I always get a little bit suspicious when you either you, you go to a premises that's supposed to be haunted or you sit down around a Ouija board and have a seance. And it's always big names. You know, you always get Napoleon or Beethoven or, you know, Caligula or whoever. You never get Fred Smith from down the road. Right. And I'm always innately suspicious when a new suspect appears who's you know oscar wilde or charles dodgson or queen victoria or whoever and it's some great prominent name from the period mm -hmm. because you know my gut and i've got absolutely no basis for this but i'm a firm believer in the local nobody right i'm a, I, I, I believe that the during the period in 1888 so you know the so-called autumn of terror i'm absolutely convinced that he lived if not in certainly very close to the area where the murders took place and he knew that area intimately and i'm convinced he was a you know the, the one letter that intrigues me i don't again you know the letters is a, another whole area but there was the um and it's not signed jack the ripper because it was actually the first letter written it predates the dear boss letter it's that intriguing letter where he claims to give his name and address and it's been blacked out and he specifically says he was a horse slaughterer and then he was looking for Annie Chapman. It was sent very shortly after the Chapman murder. And he says, um, it starts off and it, it says, I'm in misery with nightmares. It's in Stuart's book, you know, the letters from Helbert. And that letter has always intrigued me. I'm not saying that was from the killer. But that's the sort of letter I would expect from the killer, not the beautifully written, beautifully scripted Dear Boss letter. Right. That's the 24th September letter. Yeah, um, with the silhouette of the knife drawn on it. Yeah, there's the there's the I'm doing this from memory. And, and, and a coffin and, also. And it says and it says quite endearingly on the on the second page because there's the, yeah there's the outline of the coffin and it says photo of knife I think is that the one? Yeah, it is. Which always struck me as rather odd, you know. Photo is such a sort of up to date word. I presume then that they referred to a photograph as a photo, but it always struck me as rather odd. 
But the, what's intriguing about that is he claims to give both, in the middle of the first page, he claims to give both his name and address and the name of his employer. Because he says, you know, I, my name is, I can't remember, but they're blacked out. And then he says, and I work at, and there's two lines following with this. And I always wonder if those lines have been, you know, if they were looked at under sort of ultraviolet light, would there be anything underneath them? Right. Because as far as I know, that letter is still unlike the Lusk letter or whatever. I mean, I know there are some letters of which we've got copies where the original, like the Lusk letter, it no longer is in, is in existence, you know, certainly is not in the public domain. There's only copies of it known. Um, but as far as I know, that one is still physically in existence and in the public record office. And I'd, rather than Patricia Cornwall and all her dabbling about with mitochondrial DNA, I'd love to put that one un under an ultraviolet and see what's underneath. Um, definitely. Um, back to suspects. I, I know you're, um, you, you don't consider, your, you, you named the unknown local man, um, as, as a favorite. Um, what, what do you think of, uh, candidates like, uh, George Chapman or, um, Tumble Tea, um, and th those sorts? Um, by the way, the, uh, 24th September Dear Boss letter, um, is reproduced in Letters from Hell. Yeah, that's right. So, so, I think it's, so it's probably still at the public records office. Yeah. Um, oh, it's, it's, is, it, is it credited there as the public record office? Well, it's stamped, but... Um, oh, good. That uh, means it's still in existence, yeah. Yeah. I know, as I said, I know that some, even some of the important ones, and most probably the most important is the Lusk letter physically. I mean, it may well, whether it's, it was weeded in the past and is now in a private collection somewhere or whether it's moulded away and is now dust, I don't know. Well, this has um, a docket number, um, docket number 244FF4 and 5. Um, I don't know exactly what that refers to because it's not, it doesn't say it's home, held at the MEPO, so that may, may be the docket number for the public records office. What's that, the, is that the 24th of September one? Yes. Oh, I'll, um, I'll have to look there. Sorry, you were saying about Chapman and oh, Tumble. Uh, just, to, uh, just to finish up, yeah, the, I, uh, I, the envelope's reproduced as, as well as the letter. Oh, it, it must be in so there. it's then. probably still I'll, there. I'll, um, yeah, I'll, I'll email um, Stuart and see if any work's ever been done on it, because that would intrigue me. And but it anyway, does appear that something is written under where he says name. And that's address. what I thought. Cause I, I scanned it once from the letter, but I, I mean, you need much more. I scanned it once and reversed it, you know, I put it as negative. And, and there definitely appeared to be something under there, so I think there is a name under there. Right. Um, but, yeah, um, I was um, just going to get your opinion on some of the other suspects. Uh, who, yeah, who I'd better qualify. When, when I say, um, you know, the, the, what's called the local nobody, that's if I were pressed. I'm, I'm, I, I must sort of emphasize that I'm, uh, how can I, I'm not really a suspect man. I'm not saying I don't care who did it, but it's... If if somebody said to me, right, you know, draw up five questions that you can have answered from on high about Jack the Ripper. Um, actually, the actual physical named identity of the killer would be pretty low down my list. Because I, I, it's, um, there's other things about the case that, you know, interest me much more. Which I know is, un, is unusual. But, and I'm not saying I don't care about the suspects because I research them as much as I do the victims and the witnesses. But it's, I, I view the, the whole... I'm not, I don't really like the word ripperology, but the whole area of sort of Whitechapel studies is like a portal, and it takes me into areas 
that I would never normally go into. You know, I mean, I would not normally read about 19th century policing methods or, or know that Lord Salisbury was the Prime Minister or Henry, you know, who the, who the uh, um, Home Secretary was at the time or, or whatever. And right. It takes me into whole areas of um, study, some of them incredibly obscure. You know, when I was, um, when I was doing some research on Tumblety, I found this, there was a French-Canadian paper and, and uh, Tumblety at one time was prosecuted um, for administering this potentially lethal, or supposedly potentially lethal medicine. And I found this, which is on the press report somewhere, I found this incredibly long, detailed... They actually had in this French-Canadian paper the full sort of lab report of, of exactly what was in this substance they'd been um, uh, prescribing. And so... Was you know, this, uh Portmore, or um, was this the one where he caused? Yes, it was related to yes the James, alleged James Portmore yeah. death. And they they did some laboratory tests on what he'd been, um, and there was this. I mean, it was like two full pages, and it was in French. So you know, I you then get involved in sort of translating from Canadian French lab results on potential poisons, and I think, and I thought, well, you know, that's not an area I would normally go into, but it was absolutely fascinating, and it taught me a lot. And so the suspect-led side of things, although, you know, each new one that comes along, and I'm amazed at how many there are, um, some of them you get gut reactions to, but I try always not to, you know, when um, Uncle Jack came along with the, you know, the Williams candidate, and then you get the Joseph Silver, you know, the flies in the sand thing, which I've got but I haven't read yet. And then each new one that comes along, you're trying to keep an open mind because you always think, well, the next one might be the right one. You know, that might be the clincher. Right. But then I think, well, some of them, I think, are so plainly absurd that, I'd, you know, I'm still a sucker enough to read the book, although I, what I think is potentially the most absurd book is the one about Lewis Carroll and the anagrams and all that. Right. And I must admit that book I haven't got, I haven't read, and I have no intention of buying. Uh, now, you know, that may be sort of, uh, sort of narrow-minded on my part, you know, to dismiss somebody's research out of hand. But, you know, any involvement in Oscar, any, um, any complex, far-reaching conspiracy, Freemasonry, royal, it always sets off alarm bells in my head because I'm sure that the truth was actually much simpler. There was one deranged individual with a, a, you know, a very complex mindset, which, thank God, you know, I could never fully understand, who was wandering the back streets of Whitechapel for 10 weeks, 12 weeks, whoever you include as victims. Um, certainly of the three named victims, the McNaughton Memorandum, um, I think, personally, I would completely exculpate Druitt. Uh, Kosminski is extremely interesting, but I don't find the case entirely convincing. Ostrog, I think, now has been, you know, fairly comprehensively cleared because of the fact he was, you know, in prison in France at the time. Yeah. Sickert, again, I think, you know, the clincher is, although there's, you know, there's all this minutiae about what he could have written on that day. And, you know, I mean, you know, he was in France at the time. He wrote to his mother. And although the letter isn't dated, I think from the external evidence surrounding that trip to Dieppe when he went painting, you know, he was there with his, with his brother and he wrote home to his mother. Right. And then diary, wasn't even, diary no. entries that don't coincide with those letters um, yeah. uh, point to him being in France as well. His mother's that, diary, I believe it was. Yeah, 
Tumblety is a fascinating one because I th the, the reason that I think you have to take Tumblety very seriously is because, well, of two reasons. Firstly, he was, until, you know, the little child letter was found, he was a completely unknown this side of the water. And I can, and when I read the, um, when I read Stuart, uh, Stuart's book, Stuart and Keith's book, it was the, um, I can imagine their surprise when they started researching the, um, the American papers, because it just seemed so odd, especially when the papers were awash with, and it amazes me that the, that the British papers didn't pick up any of these um, American press reports naming Tumblety as a suspect. Oh, yeah, especially when it's in the New York Times. And exactly. It's just, exactly. just I'll not tell you, like because I'll, I'll tell you, Eagle I'll tell you, or something. I mean, these are exactly. I'll tell you what really amazed me and impressed me was that considering, you know, all they had at the time was the wireless telegraph, what amazes me is how quickly these reports went around the world. Right. And the most extreme example, and I, I had to check it and double-check it and triple-check it, the, uh, uh, Kelly's body was found at about 10.45 on the morning of Friday the 9th on the, of November. And initial reports, she wasn't named, but initial reports of that murder were published in a newspaper in Australia later that day. There is actually a paper dated the 9th of November with a, with a preliminary report about the Kelly murdering. Wow. And I thought that, that would be impressive today. I know we've got virtually instant communication now. So, you know, the fact that all these syndicated press reports were whizzing around the world in various forms, and you see incarnations of the same ones over and over again. But it just amazes me that there was no feedback from you know, the other side of the pond about Tumblety coming back, especially when it was right at the height. I mean, you know, he was arrested in November, skipped bail, well, he, he, he arrived back in New York, I think, on the 4th of December on the La Havre. Um, and, you know, it, it amazed, I mean, it was still, you know, very much, it was all the brouhaha going on about it. It was still very much the topic of the moment. I mean, it was still only, you know, a few weeks after the Kelly murder. And, you know, the fact, the fact that he'd skipped bail as well, and I'm just amazed that, I mean, I can imagine their surprise, you know, when they started digging into um, American papers, which just said, you know, they just called him the Whitechapel suspect or who is suspected of connection with the Whitechapel murders. I mean, you know, it was quite open. Oh, yeah, right from the no, beginning. Yeah. They didn't hint at it. Right. And it, there's, there's that lovely sort of grey area because we've got the... Uh, you know, we've got the paperwork to do with his arrest on the alleged, you know, charges of indecency with the three young men, or the three men, we don't know their ages, Doughty, um, Fisher, and I can't remember the name of the third one, uh, which was in November. Uh, sorry, no, that was in the July. But then he was arrested again in November, and there's all this, um, you know, what happened, because it, there's, as far as I know, there's, no, there's been no mention found in any British records specifically linking Tumblety with the murders, or even suspicion. You know, the only judicial records that I've seen are on these three alleged counts of um, uh, gross indecency. Right, and then you John, have Tumblety himself um, claiming to have been arrested on suspicion of being Jack there the was that, there Again, there was that wonderful article found. Again, it just shows you what's out there. There was that wonderful right. article found um, 
um, oh, late last year, which was, you know, the thing about the hat. And, uh, you know, it was obvious that he was questioned. Right. And uh, One I think co- aside from John Pizer, he's the only contemporary suspect to ever deny he, publicly he was Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Yeah. But um, the, the um, or oh, um, possibly Thomas Sadler, if you if you uh, include if you include Coles as a potential victim, right? Um, some, I mean, what amazes me as I know I'm, I know well, being a teetotaler. I mean, I don't. I mean, I used to drink, but I mean, I can, I've seen the very strange effect that some drink can you know have on some people. But when you read some of the accounts, right at the height of the murders about, you know, the bizarre things that people said. You know, they go into a police station and say, you know, I'm the murderer. And, you know, the number of people who owned up, some were charged with it. Right. You know, and actually appeared in court. And they said, well, no, Gov, actually I was drunk. Mm-hmm. And you think, God, you know, what a dangerous game you were playing. You know, didn't, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit like going on Big Brother. It's almost as though people would do anything for the sake of notoriety. You know, anything to be in the public eye. But, you know, not at the end of a rope. Right. You know, I, I, I find that sort of, I know there's this strange, you know, mental aberration about people wanting to confess. You know, whenever you get a high-profile murder or series of murders, quite often you'll get people confessing who patently had nothing to do with it. But, uh, you know, I do find it bizarre that, you know, I mean, they're lucky that in some cases they're lucky they weren't lynched, let alone actually get to a court and be condemned. Right. I mean, certainly there was, I can't remember his name, there was one individual who specifically confessed to the uh, Mitre Square murder and actually appeared in court charge with it on his own account. But then, then it, was, it was apparent that he was, he was roaring drunk at the time and it was dismissed. Um, but now, I mean, all, all of these, as I said, Tumblety, I think, has to be taken seriously. All, all one can assume is any British connection or any British evidence that actually linked him with the murders was... Um, Contained in this file that Little Child mentions, I mean, little, in the Little Child letter, it says, you know, it, it, it hints that there was a pretty substantial file on Tumblety at Scotland Yard, which, of course, has long since gone. Um, hopefully still exists somewhere. I mean, lo- I'd love to have a leaf through that. But um, of the others, I mean, uh, Chapman, there's, to me, there's this insuperable problem of the sort of change of method. I find it very hard. I know... There have been instances, but I mean, to me, it's it's a pretty major thing to go from being, you know, the kind of killer that Jack was, to being a you know a your um, wife killer using poison. Right. It, um, to me, to me, it demonstrates a completely different mindset. I mean, however, twi- however twisted you consider him logically, if you think if you think of Chapman's crimes just as Chapman or Klosowski. Forget about his Ripper connection. But if you consider his crimes just as Chapman, however bizarre, you can see some, t- some kind of twisted logic to them. You can actually assign a rational motive to them. You know, either he, you know, hideous though they were, you can understand why he would want to get wife X out of the way. You know, either, either, either a newer model had come along or, you know, there might have been some financial incentive or whatever. Right, but you can. I mean, to me, the whole the whole problem with the with the Ripper crimes is the is the is trying to assign a motive because the the um, 
the trap they fell into, the psychological trap they fell into at the time, and uh, repeatedly people still do, is trying to assign a rational motive to it. Because to me, the whole uh, royal conspiracy, Farago, arose because people were trying to attribute a rational motive to what are me, uh, to me are a series of irrational acts. Or they're, they're based on a rationality that is so twisted and so beyond normal reason and logic that, you know, we can't understand it. Yeah. They, you know, the, the argument was, if we can find a logical set of circumstances, i.e. threat to the throne, risk of exposure, you know, all that then, uh, a clique of, um, clique of um, blackmailing prostitutes led by Mary Kelly, you know, pose a risk to the status quo that gives it a logical motive and to me that that's like the cart before the horse because you're you're looking for the motive first rather than looking at the evidence and seeing where it leads you because to me if you look at the evidence it's the uh it's the more unpleasant aspects you know that you have to dwell on such as the post-mortem re post-mortem reports the mutilations the taking of the organs to me they give a much more um, incisive pointer to the frame of mind and the whatever motive there was of the killer than any kind of cloud cuckoo land rationale like the royal conspiracy theory because right. to me you're, you're, you're building a construct on sort of um, foundations of sand they just don't hold up right I agree now um, I do want to ask you one more question about um, before we wrap this up we're a little over two hours um, oh my god it's not is it yeah well i did i did warn you once i get talking no that's okay i started um the podcast kind of recording before i actually introduced the show so oh, okay um but anyway um back to taking what i one of the things i find interesting in um in in this um census research is is that you're able to not only <clears throat> track the movements of individuals through the East End, but you you also um, present information on just the uh, the almost the history of the tenants of the buildings. Now, granted, there's in some cases a ten year gap, you know, between yeah. who lived in at one address yeah. in 1881 as opposed to 1891, so on. Yeah. Um, but you are able to get give this. Um, as fluid as it as it can possibly be, history of, yeah. of just that, uh, some, I mean, of, some of the buildings in the East End. Um, well, it's like not only – I mean, the one I've posted today is the only thing I've posted today because there was some dialogue going on in one of the threads about the tenants of Nine Kings Bench Walk, um, you know, where Druitt had chambers. And so yesterday I posted a listing of the all the um, – not only number nine, but the whole of... Because King's Bench Walk, it was one to 13. So yesterday I looked up and uh, typed out the tenants of one to 13 King's Bench Walk as listed in um, 1881, and today I did 1891. Um, again, you learn little tricks and wrinkles because uh, the, the source that I use, which is... It is a pay site, but it's, it's Ancestry.com. But on there, you can search the 1881. They've obviously... Um, structured the the registers that they input for the volunteers in slightly different ways because in 1881 you can search by address as well as by surname but in 1891 you can't you can only search by name so what i did yesterday was i searched by address i just put in king's bench and then london 
and it came up with, and I found King's Bench Walk, and typed them all out. You then have to hope, and you, you use various sort of little twists of, you know, a bit of logic, and I, I was looking through, so I had a list of all the tenants from 1881, and I was sitting here this morning, and I thought, now, what's the chances that any of those tenants were still living there 10 years later? Because some of them, you always go for the more unusual names first, and more obscure places to be born. And about the third one I tried, which was a guy called Anthony Green, um, he came up. So because I typed him into the 1891 one, and it came up as King's Bench Walk. So then, and they were also in different parishes, completely different parishes. So, because um, that's the other way you can search. If, if you can establish the parish in the 1881 census, sometimes that can lead you to the 1891. But, I mean, it was like uh, finding out, um, sometimes it can take hours, literally hours, just to find one address. I wanted to find, um, going back to the Sickert version of the um, Lodger story, because I knew he lived at Six Mornington Crescent. He came back to England in about, uh, sometime between 1905, 1908, I can't remember the exact date. Um, and that's roughly when he would have heard the story. So, um, obviously, the, the lodger referred to would have been long before. I mean, it would have been, what, 15, no, 12, yeah, about 17 years before, if it was 1905, the time of the murders. But I wanted to look up Six Mornington Crescent to see who was there at, you know, at the time, because on, on, on the, the hope that uh, they would still have been there when Sickert, because 1901 is the latest census because of the 100-year rule. It's the most recent census to which we've got access. Um, in three years' time, we get access to the 1911 census and so on. Um, and I found this elderly couple who were there, um, George, I think, I think the surname was Brown. I did post it on the case book. So, you know, it's all little twists and wrinkles like that. You Sometimes you have to project. You take a seemingly minor piece of... Um, information from one search and you project that to help you into another search maybe 10 years later or 10 years um you know 10 years earlier now, so how, I mean, I how are you able to determine that nine kings bench walk was um unoccupied in in 1891 because it, in it, the in the uh, there's a there is one column um in the census which i don't normally include because if you're going to include people in a, at an address then by definition it's inhabited Right, but there's one column uh, against an address, which will—it's the third column in from the left, and it, it says "I or you," which is inhabited or uninhabited. Oh, okay, I, I had understood you to say that you were unable to search by address in 1891. No, no, no. So, but when 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 it says nine Kings Bench Walk uninhabited, it means nine nine Kings Bench Walk is listed, but it's specifically down in the census return as uninhabited. Oh, okay. Doesn't, yeah, it doesn't mean I couldn't find it, because if I couldn't, I'd always say so. But if it, any, any address and it says uninhabited, it means I have found it, but it's specifically listed as having nobody living there. Okay. Because it. all it says is, in this particular column, it just says you. So it's I, and then it goes to split it down into households if it's a multiple occupancy place. But for uh, Nine Kings Bench Walk, over the three censuses, oh, 90, um, I, I haven't yet posted it, but be, before I came on, about six o'clock this evening, I found uh, uh, King's Bench Walk in the 1901 census, and at that stage as well, uh, number nine is down as uninhabited. Okay. Which suggests, I uh, don't know what you read into that, whether it means, because we know Monty had chambers there, 
and people still do, whether it meant that there were no facilities there to actually sleep over, that they were literally just offices, office space. But, of course, that would cast a new light on, um, you know, whether he could have used it as a base um, if he was the murderer for the time of the murders to go back and change his clothes or whatever. Right. And it would also... Um, it might also clear up this question about which premises it was that his um, brother searched, which was mentioned at the inquest, because William drew it, um, you know, it said at the um, inquest at the Lamb and Tap. All it said was that his chambers had been searched. Now, it didn't make clear whether it meant when he'd been, because we knew that he lived in at the school, at Valentine's School in Elliot Place, or whether it meant the chamber, because it was this alleged search that brought to light the, um, the suicide note. Right. Although why he never had that on him, I don't know, because I would have thought if somebody was going to throw themselves in the river, it would make sense if you were going to write a suicide note to actually have it on your person. Right. Rather, rather than leaving it in your chambers. But maybe he used logic and thought, well, if, depending on how long I'm in the water before they find me, it might rot away or just dissolve or whatever. Right. <clears throat> well, but anyway, I, I shall keep posting and keep plugging away. Well, uh, we all appreciate all... all all of the work you do it's well, I've made, it's, it's amazing you know. well no I've, I've you know i enjoy it if it's of use to others it's great and i've made some very very good friends through casebook and um you know as i said it's always my first port of, port of call i come in turn on the radio turn on the broadband and it's onto casebook and see what's being posted it's uh, sort of like it's become a ritual now Right. Well, your work's so it, it, um, pretty much on. I mean, it's genealogy on par with stuff that's being done on the victims, like Neil Sheldon. That's um, right. Well, that that just just as a last sort of postscript, that was one of the main um, because the the main. It, it's going to sound selfish, but I mean, it's it's like you know, if, uh, I usually use the sort of rule of thumb. If I find something that's of interest to me, with the you know the wide readership and the wide range of interests that Casebook has got, there's a fair to middle in chance it might be of interest to some other people but the reason the main reason i actually wrote the kelly book was because neil whose research is incredible and whose four books are you know that was the one victim he hadn't covered because he'd done victims one to four but he'd never done a book on kelly right and, and there were various sort of things and i started thinking about it and the more i read about it and i thought well is that true you know did is, it, is there any evidence that you know? Is any, can any of this story be substantiated? And it was when I came to write the the book. Will the and this is no genius on my part, but the when I wrote the book, will the real Mary Kelly? Admittedly, it's only 150 odd pages, but I wrote that in three days hmm. because it was only an assembly job. It was all research. I'd, all it done. All it, it was collating. It was almost like cutting and pasting because it was stuff I'd already done to answer questions that I was asking myself. And I thought, hang on, this might be of interest to other people. So that, that's entirely how it came about. Well, um, again, your, your work and knowledge of this case is very impressive. And, uh, and all, all of your work uh, that you've been posting um, on the case, but gives us a better glimpse at the lives and the lives of the families of people um you yeah. directly involved or on the periphery of the case so uh well, we, all, if, we do all you know if, if, well that's very kind and i mean you know anything i even if it's uh, of only interest to one person you know it's, it's been shared and you know all you can do is put it out there as a friend of mine said you know it's like throwing pebbles in a pond and you know the ripples go out and you know if one person picks up on them then 
And as I said, I've made some very good friends. And, you know, I'll keep posting all the time I find stuff that uh, I think might be interesting. Well, great. We look forward to it. And thank, thanks for having me on the Rippercast. It's been, and I'm sorry I've blathered on so much. Oh, it's no problem. And and um, and I we do want to get you back on at some point. Um, we'll keep in touch because uh, I do want Paul um, on when he has a better connection. Okay, yeah, that would be that would be great. Um, so uh, I'll go ahead and wrap it up. You have been listening to Rippercast, episode 19, the case in progress with researcher and author Chris Scott. Uh, we are a weekly podcast available at the iTunes Music Store podcast section keyword at the Ripper or at www.rippernet.com. And I do thank Chris Scott again for being on the show today. You're very welcome. And uh, might I say, all, all my research is going to be a doddle compared to you having to edit this diatribe. Oh, <laughs> uh, believe me, it, it, I really don't. I really don't think you have to edit this lot. Uh, there won't be too much edited out uh, some of the times when Paul dropped out and there was some confusion. Yeah. But other than that, it's going to be going up as is. Okay. Uh, um, so, yeah, don't, we, don't you okay. worry about me. I, it's I've been, had, been great talking to you, and I'll come back on any time you like. Oh, great. You're welcome on it at any time. And, okay. And um, I also want to thank Paul Begg, who is on briefly uh, from Maidstone, Kent, in the U.K., and Robert McLaughlin came to us from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And we'll see you next week. 